yeah, it, I think that's another reason why a lot of people will quit these things is because, you know, they've got these commitments back home. And for someone like me that doesn't, it's easier for me to keep going because what's the alternative? Um, so there wasn't any doubt. I mean, there's sometimes you get down on yourself, or you're frustrated, but, you know, you, you just got to get through. It's going to make you a better person. It's going to make you a better hiker. Um, you know, overcoming those obstacles because after a couple of weeks, you get your feet under you, your legs get strong. So now it's a mental game. It's how long can I be cold, wet, tired, eating oatmeal, you know, being dirty. And some people can only handle that mentally for a couple of weeks. Some people can handle it for a couple of months. Some people can handle it for an AT distance. I found on the ECT, I happen to be one of those people that can kind of just go as long as it takes. And in that case, it was 10 and a half months. Mm. So you, amazing. you, yeah. So you make your way to the Appalachian Trail. So most of these through hikers are like the biggest question in life is like, am I going to go up Amicalola Falls or am I going to start at like Springer Mountain? Yeah. And you roll in as a smelly, um, battle-hardened yeah. mess. I came in the backside. <laughs> That's so I remember. Cool. <laughs> I came in the backside. I remember, man. And there was this like Joe Cool like hiker dude wearing like short, short running shorts and a tank top, talking to some like day hikers, like doing the AT man. He's so cool. And I kind of like stumbled up to them and they looked at me. <laughs> they said, "What are you doing?" And I'm like. I just hiked from Miami. Where's Springer Mountain? <laughs> and uh, I just kind of stumbled past him. And the Joe Cool dude was kind of like, oh, I'm not that awesome, you know? <laughs> cool moment. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. All right, episode 50 here. Stomp, can you believe it? The big 5-0. Yeah, no kidding. Full year of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. Yeah, you know, actually, now that you mention it, I think our anniversary is coming up uh, in April at some point, right? I think so. Yeah. So we made 50 episodes in a year. I never thought we'd make it this far. I thought that we would do three or four episodes. They would suck, (laughs) and we would have a falling out and never talk again. (laughs) So far, so good. (laughs) I know. I keep waiting for it to happen. Yeah. Bad. So what is it? Fifty episodes. We had around fifty-five thousand downloads. So we're, somebody likes us. I was looking at, um, I know that we're, we're basically like with the, this coffee stuff and everything. We are just looking at trying to cover our costs. So I think it costs like eight hundred bucks or something a year to run this thing. But I was looking at some some advertising. So they have this platform that you can go on called Podcorn. Yeah, and you can. It basically like looks at how many downloads you have, and then it'll offer up like these different places that you can advertise, and it's it's pretty funny. There's like men's facial cream we could add aver- we could add on the show. <laughs> Wait a second. So what is, what happens? Yeah. It it embeds it into the audio. Yeah, you can. Well, no. What you can do is just sort of bid on these. Di- so there's this platform that says like here's all these advertisers, and then you can send them a proposal and say. 
like we want to advertise. We we will advertise on your show, and you should pay us money. And here's why: uh-huh. there is one good one. There's this company called Global Rescue, which we're giving them free advertising here. But like, it's basically like <laughs> travel insurance for people that are going all over the place. So we got Cheswick. Actually, we'll probably ask you about that later. But um, you know, what the hell do you do for insurance if you're like, yeah, going off the grid for like six months or so? But we'll, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. We'll dig into that. But I thought the the facial cream might have been good for you, Stomp. And then there was another one. Oh, female dating site. Huh. I uh, wouldn't so, apply to me. I, I can't do that. Well, I think it's <laughs> I think it's female dating. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's females dating females. So I guess oh. neither one of us would be very helpful with that. <laughs> right. So anyway. But we're pretty happy with Reckless. But if you are a... Um, company that wants to advertise with us let us know we'll take your money i'll check it out man Podcoin. yeah anyway well um so just one topic i wanted to cover with you stomp is i had a return to social media remember how i swore off social media yeah how'd that go shitty shitty so what happened um so i i hiked and i'll talk about this I, i had a day off so i went and did franconia ridge and um I was it was a good hike, and then I was approaching like I I passed Lincoln, I was heading towards Little Haystack, and I look up ahead and I'm like, what the hell is that? So it was like a somebody left like a it was a sleeping bag in a stuff pack, and yeah. then it was like a you know those like canvas bags that we used before They're like a before COVID started, everyone was like, don't use plastic, and then you had to use those like canvas bags for your groceries. Yeah, yeah, I don't know yeah. if that, I that's a Massachusetts thing. It was like full of like half open ramen, um, trail mix. There was like some canned food in there and some frozen like water and stuff. And I was like, "What the hell is this?" Hmm. It looked like um, it looked like a homeless like encampment type food thing. I don't know what it was, but so I'm like looking then, and I was like, "This doesn't belong to anyone." Um, so I like looked around to see if somebody might have gone off trail, and nobody had. So I I picked up the sleeping bag, and this thing must have weighed like. I don't know, 10, 15 pounds because it was like waterlogged. So I took a picture of it and I was like, well, I'll hold on to this just in case it belongs to someone. And then I was like, I'll take the sleeping bag down and then I fit some of the food in there. And I was like, I'll at least pack it out because it's just going to be trash up here. So when I got home, I posted it on social media in one of the 4,000 footer sites. And I figured like I'll get all kinds of like pats on the back for hauling all the shit out. So I wanted to get my social media glory. And... um <laughs> It went horribly wrong. Like everyone's like, that was probably like a food drop for a long distance hiker that you 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 stole all the food. And I was like, why would they leave where, it right on the trail? Ch- Cheswick, when you guys do food, like when you do food drops, like you don't put them. You wouldn't do a food drop in the middle of Franconia Ridge. Like you do it at a trailhead, or you'd have somebody that's like dropping it at an accessible spot for them, not hiking up like three thousand feet, right? Right, and you're not going to have cans of stuff. That stuff, you know, that shit's heavy. Yeah. So, I mean, any, no, any, I mean, ramen, sure, but you're not going to have heavy cans of whatever and so much water up there. I don't know. That's yeah. that's really weird. I, that yes. sounds to me like an overprepared overnight person from Rhode Island. Yep, exactly. So <laughs> they were just like, they were like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm sick of humping this shit, and I'm just going to leave it and. Instead of looking at it like they were littering, they were like, oh, I'm going to leave it for somebody else that's going to need it. Yeah. You know? 
do my part. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that was exactly what I thought. I was like, all right, this is somebody that just overpacked and they're just dropping stuff. So I took it down, but then I posted on social media and I was like, well, you know, everyone's going to think I'm a hero and it never works out. Like the same thing happens with my kids. Like I think I do something great and then I just get shit. So immediately like someone's like, you shouldn't have done that. Like that was somebody's stuff. And then some other ladies like, that's not ethical to take like people's stuff. And it it turned into a whole thing. And I was just like, look, it was like, it was exactly what Cheswick just said. It was like somebody that overpacked. I know that, I don't really know. I've never really seen like a food cat, but I sort of have an idea of what a drop would look like, and it would be a little bit more organized than that. Um, so it was weird though because it opened up this can of worms. Like somebody had posted, I guess they somebody found a whole stash of like gear th- strewn around in the Skookumchuck Trail, right? As right. well, and they yeah. they were like, this might be. Remember Mason talked about how he found some gear too. Sure. Um. See. So this person posted on on the Facebook page, and they were like, "This link to the a Reddit site where someone was like, I found all this gear, and I reported it to the Franconia Police Department.'" And they wrote on there, they were like, "Yeah, the Franconia PD said that they're not interested," and they said that there's like a homeless guy that's living on the ridge, aggressive <laughs> homeless guy. I heard. I guess. I guess is whatever like a that means. Hardy homeless dude. Mountain views, man. Mountain views. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. guess. I found a place like that on the backside of Eagle Cliff. I think it might have been with Chaga or uh, Nick. I can't quite remember at this point. Probably Nick. But uh, yeah, somebody had set up shop and just living under a, a tarp and had a you know chair, lounge chair and all this and that. I mean, I remember I ran into that, that teepee over here in Welch Dickey and I had to call that in. It's like, there's people out there living everywhere. I wonder if there's a Franconia hermit. It wouldn't surprise me. I He's mean, not going like, to leave his stuff though. He's gonna he's gonna keep his stuff. Yeah, yeah that's true. I think that was just ridge magic. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if I came across that stuff on the through hike, I would be eating the fuck out of it. I, would, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. think twice about like, is this somebody? Should I leave? Oh, I'm eating that. You know? yeah, yeah. These well. people that are posted like, how dare you? They've never been hungry. They don't know. Yeah, They're, yeah. So, awesome. but anyway, I I did haul it up, but it sucked because I was like. I had to, what ended up happening was I took the sleeping bag and it was like a frozen block and um, I didn't know what was in it. I was like, I'm like, if it's a sleeping bag, it's going to be ruined. I mean, maybe if it's synthetic, like maybe you could hear it out or whatever. But when I got it home, I thought it out and I looked at, I had it in my trash and I just opened it up and it turned out that it wasn't even a sleeping bag. It was like a cotton quilt that you would use like sitting on your couch and they stuffed it into like a Ozark Trail stuff pack from walmart yeah it was like it wasn't even i didn't even know if it was from walmart or if it was from like awesome his grandmother's house or something so anyway it it turned out to be nothing but i guess the point is is that nobody is dropping you know a legitimate gear drop on franconia ridge i guess is what it comes down to yeah doubtful no and What what time of year was this this was last weekend yeah i mean it's definitely not a through hiker yeah, yeah, that's Wait, what. Well, that's what somebody else said. They were like, somebody is going. There's a northbound through hiker that was on Musalaki a week ago and is probably making their way along the ridge, and someone dropped stuff for him. And I was like, that just doesn't. I'm like, I just don't see that happening. Like, there's nobody going northbound this time of the year. So, social media is toxic, and I'm staying off of it. There was somebody that probably was trying to do the PEMI in a day, and they got that's up. It. it was like, you know what? 
this is way too much shit. It's way too heavy. I'm not going to eat all this. I don't want to carry all this. And they just dumped it. Yeah, that's that what I think. Times out of 10, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. but I'll, I'll get into the hike in a little bit more detail later on. But um, stop moving on. In Infinite Storm, the trailers are coming out. What do you think? It's uh, causing more of a storm than um, the the Cog Presby story. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of talk about it in the search and rescue circles. So uh, we're all looking forward to watching it. Um, I mean, I saw the trailer. For the most part, I'm actually sort of pleased with it. I think from what the trailer showed, I think 75% of it, you could plausibly say, oh, yeah, that looks sort of like Mount Washington. But then there's the, the 25% that was just, yeah, not not accurate. But, uh, you know, um, knowing Pam myself and having heard her voice, I was really impressed with Naomi Watts uh, accent. Like she sounded just like Pam. So that's pretty cool. Um, I have no idea who that actor is, but uh, he seems like he's going to do a good job, I suppose. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get Ty on and we'll chat about it after the fact. A little Ty movie review. Yeah. And he had given us a heads up too, that like the filming, like it was going to be, you'd have to suspend belief a little bit just because of the mountains or just they're just different and we're like the worst people to be critical about it because everybody that's going to watch it that's into hiking in new hampshire is going to know what it looks like inside and out so i did read um an interview with pam recently where she did call out the 20 foot spruce traps which is the first thing i noticed on that trailer i'm like i don't know about that um all right yeah so we'll um that that comes out on i think the 25th of march and We'll watch it. I don't know. I'm hoping like you can just get it from your house, but I don't, I don't know how movies are working nowadays. But we'll watch it, and then we'll get Ty in to do a review, and that, that should be fun. Yeah. And uh, did you see this stuff I posted about these longboarders doing the roads down mountains and stuff? Yeah, you get this guy. So Stomp is like the resident like snowboarder, skater, die dude, and he, <laughs> he gave me this link to cover. This guy, Josh Newman, yeah. died in a plane crash in Iceland. So... I, I'm personally like I've been to Iceland and I'm in Iceland, so I figured like Stomp can talk about his longboarding stuff, and then I can talk about Iceland. Yeah, well, it's like honestly, I feel like I've been living under a rock. Back in the day, I had a longboard, and I actually you know graffitied it to look like a Burton Safari and stuff like that. And I used to hit the half pipes with my buddy John and stuff. But where the hell have I been? I, I've never seen this stuff up until like two days ago. So it just blew me away watching these guys come down these roads, you know. So if anybody's inter- interested, check it out. It's basically uh, downhill skateboarding or longboarding. Just look up um, Josh Newman, Lisa Peters. I mean, it's pretty epic stuff. And they're lightly dressed. They have gloves on with some kind of metal or ceramic protection so that they can put their hand down to make sharp turns at high speed. It's pretty epic. So check it out. But uh, yeah, you're right. So Josh um, ended up uh, in a plane crash and perished. I, I saw some videos of this. This dude crashed at 55 miles an hour going down a hill. So he, he was on borrowed time as it is anyway. But it's True. insane. Like, True. Yeah. They're going down. I'm not a... Cheswick, do you skateboard or do any of that stuff? No. Yeah, me neither. But like... You're dangerous. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> you'd rather deal with grizzly bears. But, um, and the traffic. The oncoming traffic, too. Oncoming traffic. And then, like, it looked to me like the one video I saw with this. So this guy's going down on a skateboard down a hill. And somehow they're, like, able to turn the skateboard and, like, glide without stopping. But his he just, like, started – the second the, the skateboard starts wobbling, it's over. Oh, yeah. And this kid just goes forward at 55 miles an hour, and he has no elbow pads or anything. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, so exposed. Yeah. Very yeah, impressive. It's crazy. 
Yeah, but anyway, this guy, the thing that caught my attention when you, I know you get excited about skateboarding, I could care less, but the thing that caught my attention was this guy crashed into the Thingvalier Lake, which is, if you go to Iceland, which I recommend to everybody, um, most people will fly into like the airport that's on like the, the west side of Reykjavik, and then you stay in Reykjavik, and then... People will typically like spend a day doing this thing called the Golden Circle. And as part of the Golden Circle, it's sort of like it's sort of like if you if you um, did the kank and then looped around Route 25 and did like a big circle or something like that from Conway. It's sort of like that idea. Yeah, sure. Um, this this lake is like a giant lake that's sort of at the the far end of this golden circle and the guy must have crashed into it. I don't think it's that, it's pretty shallow, honestly. So they must have, I don't know, I guess they found him in like 30 meters of water. So that's that's pretty deep actually, but it's generally pretty shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this golden circle, it's like this touristy section. So they have like this crater called the Carid Crater that you can pay 10 bucks and you can go in and look and it's like this asteroid hit the earth and you can go in and look and it's like a perfectly round crater with like this blue water yeah which is cool and then they have the the geyser there which is like this natural thermal springs that pop up and then if you go south of the golden circle they've got this hike which is called the langavir trail and they have fimmerdulis i think is the name of the the trail that goes from the southern part of langavir and that's like a tourist section and I was hiking there for it's like you climb a waterfall and then you hike and I didn't meet I didn't see anybody after I got past a mile all the tourists took off and I was hiking up along this bridge and I saw two people they were the only people I saw that made it that far and they were from New Hampshire yeah and they said to you hey aren't you that guy on that podcast that can't pronounce anything in New Hampshire but you can pronounce everything from Norwegian countries like flawlessly <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. What's, what's up but with that? But it was cool because, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I'm probably not pronouncing this shit correctly. You just think I am. But um, this place is cool. So I'm hiking, and it was like this older gentleman and his wife, and they're like, oh, you're American. And I was like, yeah, I'm American. And I was like, I'm from Massachusetts. And they're like, oh, I'm from New Hampshire. And I was like, oh, I hike in the whites all the time. And they were like, oh, yeah, we do the 4,000 footers and all that stuff. So go all the way to Iceland to meet a local New Hampshire, right? <laughs> Go figure. That's pretty cool. Well, 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 I guess we're moving on to some donations, huh? Yeah, well, rest in peace, Josh Newman. Yeah. Um, there's worse places to crash into a, into a lake. Yeah. Yeah, I topped off those videos with um, some, some brothers that like diving into like caves and crawling through five to six mile long caves. And one of the caves was like, took him six hours to get through I'll, I'll forward you the link if you want man my wife was having a panic attack watching this I don't video like him. yeah I'm this is some mrs stomp there's some crazy like stuff shit. out there on the web but uh back to donations so we have uh let's see brandon from Lawtown donated five coffees uh just today we got a donation from pabejo uh an at through hiker and future amc backcountry steward uh welcome aboard to the podcast and uh thanks for volunteering for their amc that's totally cool and uh for sponsors just a quick plug for reckless where you'll enjoy the best food craft beer and fun just 15 minutes from franconia notch many of the 4k footers and less than 10 minutes from the five corners and i just want to give a special shout out to spinner's pizza parlor this is family 
down in and, uh, Andover. So if you guys are heading south after your hike, hit exit 38 off Dascom Road and visit Spinners uh, and be sure to say hi to Dolls and Pops for us, okay? They're great people. They got some good food down there. That's all I got, kid. Very good. All right. So we're at the show summary now, right? Anything else before I get into it? I think that's it. We're good. All right. So welcome to episode 50 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are excited to be joined by our friend Cheswick, who is here to share his stories of long distance hiking. Um, And most people, when they think of long distance hiking, they're thinking like the three big long trails. Cheswick takes it to another level. So he's covered a lot of miles in his life, including uh, being one of the few people to hike the Eastern Continental Trail. Uh, He's now focused on the Great Western Loop, which is an almost 7,000 mile loop in the Western United States, consisting of the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail, along with a number of connecting trails that creates a big giant loop that covers like nine states across the Western U.S. So um, we're going to get his story and and talk about long distance hiking and a bunch of other topics here. And then later in the show, um, Stomp had mentioned this earlier, but the Cog Railroad um, has got some drama going on. So they're proposing a plan for lodging just below the summit and everybody is losing their minds. So the plan is to position 18 <laughs> rail cars just below the summit of Mount Washington for seasonal overnight guests. And um, some people are not happy about it. So we're going to give our thoughts on that proposal. We'll get in a little cog railroad history and then we've got some search and rescue news. So I'm Mike and I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, um, so beer talk. Mike, Stop, what are you drinking? I got my homework right. I'm actually drinking a beer called Machine. And the reason I got this was it's a uh, Czech-style Pilsner. I love Czech Pilsners. And uh, it's made by Bunker Brewing Company over in Maine. So it's uh, it's really good. It's it's very similar to that, that Czech Pilsner by Moat, I believe. But um, it has a little bit more of a, a bite to it. I guess that would be hops. Awesome. <laughs> How about you? I um so I knew you were going to talk about skateboarding so I went to the I had to go to the uh the store earlier today after I picked up my car I had to get my brakes redone and I was looking around I was like I want something that's going to fit in with the theme of the show so I got <laughs> a guy with a skateboard. <laughs> nice. So it is um God knows what the company is, right? It's just got a cool logo. It's well I know it's it's a double it's a bonus. So Bearwolf uh, beer Wolf Brewing, which is local to Amesbury where I live, has this beer and it's called Fluck, Flux and Rad. Huh. So it has something to do with skateboarding and it's an IPA. So Very cool. Very cool. Good stuff. You got anything, Cheswick? You drink, You a drinker? I used to. Uh, I don't anymore. But right yeah. now I'm enjoying a fresh O'Doul's in a 20-ounce Guinness glass. <laughs> Okay. Very nice. Very nice. So awesome. Yeah, buddy. Sweet. Give me yeah. an old duels and kill me. That I remember some of my friends back in the day used to say that at the bar. Like just give yeah. me an old duels and kill me. Yes. There was a guy the other night at the so, bar who was drinking Heineken Zero. He was drinking that with Jack on the Rocks. He was like, Okay. That's a new one. He was like, That's my Jaser. Like <laughs> but after like five Jack on the Rocks, it doesn't fucking matter. But okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just counting calories or something. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. That was funny. That's hilarious. 
Awesome. Well, so we got the beer covered here. Stomp, any recent hikes you want to talk about? Yeah, got a got a big one. It was really cool. My wife and I hit um, uh, Welch. That was nice, a little romance. And uh, a couple of days ago, <coughs> excuse me, after that uh, four-inch storm we had up here in, in Waterville, uh, Thornton area, I uh, went out towards Acteon and um, Acteon Ridge, which is basically um, a really nice ridge. Six miles down from 93, um, parked the old truck at Six Mile Bridge, and it was funny. It's like I didn't want, I didn't bring spikes, so I just wore my snowshoes, and um, call it a mistake. I don't think it was because I knew what I was doing. I'm like, even if it's icy, I'll just go around the ice, that type of thing. But on the way up to Bald Knob, it's really a bushwhack. I mean, there are climbing trails to get to these locations, but you got to do your research. So I'm not even going to bother telling you how to find this. Do your research and you can get in here. Um, it's awesome. Um, there's a brook that you follow up from the southern end of Bald Knob, and that is the western terminus of this. And if you keep on going uh, east, you'll end up at Jennings. And um, it's just epic up there. So it was really cool. I was I started out and I'm following some bear booters and I have my snowshoes on and it gets up to some steeper, you know, 40, 50 degree sections and they switched over to spikes. So I'm following this and they diverted left, which takes you into this massive, if you can imagine like subway uh, from the, you know, King Ravine. But add mm-hmm. those boulders to a 40, 50 degree angle. That's exactly what this lower section of Bald Peak is like. So these guys go left instead of going right, which, you know, right takes you into this boggy area, which gives you several options to get to Acteon Ridge, Bald Peak, a couple other little locations. So I follow these guys. I finally catch up with them. Um, it's maybe 500 feet from the summit. Um, Bald Peak is like 2,300. So you start at 1,000 and you're going up you know, 13, very, very quick and very steep. And these guys bottleneck at this 100-foot drop of just, you know, snow-covered granite. Their dog is stuck on the other side of the ledge. They can't get across it. And I'm in my snowshoes, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, hell no, I'm just going to back out and head back down. Um, there was, it's very intriguing, though. There was a way you could get around them and go left, but... We're going to have to revisit it and try to explore this whole area because it's epic in there. I did, I did find some areas where climbers had put in some anchors. So, I mean, obviously climbers know about this area. So I'm making my way back down and I do tap into a climber trail and then I make my way up the proper way that I know back up to Bald Knob and it was just beautiful, like knee-deep powder. And then I make my way over to Acteon and that's heading east. And after I get Acteon, <clears throat> I'm feeling all cocky. So... I decide just to bushwhack straight south off of the summit of Acteon because I know eventually it's going to hit the old Smarts Brook Trail, which is the trail that leads up to Sandwich Dome or back to Smarts Brook Junction. And, you know, I don't know. It's maybe a mile and a half, two miles. But unfortunately, I, I started gassing out a little bit and I was starting to get a little cold. It's about three in the afternoon. So I, I'm, I'm heading down trail. And I'm, I'm shading sort of southwest following the sun because I know it's going to take me right back there. And guess what pops up? Brambles and baby uh, spruce, pine spruce, like just acres of it. And it was just after the snowstorm. So my Gore-Tex ultimately starts getting soaked. And, you know, I, I have stuff in my pack, but it was, it was a little nerve wracking, man. It was pretty hardcore. I got out of there exhausted. I finally... Um, 
made it back to the trail. And it was one of those holy shit, thank God moments. I'm like, man, that, that was sort of rough, you know? And this this area here, this is like I'm looking at the map right now. So now it's, I'm sort of it's rugged, my, man. It's my it's daring. So so you got Bald Knob, and then you have Sachem Peak, which is that peak that if you've ever done, if you've been on Jennings, which is like next to Sandwich Dome, yeah. Sachem Peak is the one that is like sort of like it's a cliff that you look down on, right? Is that yeah, where you towards, were you were at? I was west of that. So the next peak over is Acteon. So if okay. you're bushwhacking to Jennings, it's it's Bald Peak, Acteon, Satcham Cliff, which is like A number one in my book. It's 360 panorama. It's beautiful. And then you hit Jennings and then you hit, you know, Sandwich or whatever you want to do. Okay. But yeah, so pretty intense. You know, it's like I knew, I had all this shit in my pack. So I was just in one of those moods to sort of push myself and I found my limit. <laughs> yeah, I got to get in yeah, there. Yeah, it was almost time. died. Stomp was yeah. almost a search and rescue. <laughs> you think about that stuff because you know, when you're in the middle of all that spruce and the brambles, you're like, when is this going to end? You know, you know, 100 feet can take you forever, it seems. So it was a pretty cool adventure. But uh, yeah, definitely a learning experience. Even these short little bushwhacks can be, uh, you know, challenging all of a sudden. So that's all I got. How about you? You going to tell us about your hike? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so, I, again, like I've been talking about like this Madison and Adams hike forever. And I just, I had some, my wife was in Florida. So I had the kids this week. And um, I was like, well, if I do Madam, Madison and Adams, like I have to leave super early. And then I wanted to be back. My daughter wanted to like do some stuff that night. So I was like, you know what? I'm just, it was an extra hour to get up to Madison. And then it'd probably be an extra two hours to do that loop. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do Franconia Ridge. It's only two hours from my house. And then I'll be done. If I get on trail by 645 or 7, I'll be done by noon. And then I can get home in time to, you know, do stuff with my kids. So I ended up bailing on the, the Northern Presidentials again and the weather was kind of sketchy. It said it was going to be a little cloudy anyway. So I did Franconia Ridge, and I ended up doing Old Bridal up to Greenleaf, and then then up to Lafayette, and then I came across um, to Lincoln, found that stupid gear stuff, packed that <laughs> out, and then went down Falling Waters. But it was like icy it was. I had to put crampons on coming up uh, from Greenleaf just because it's so much like. I think there's a lot of melt and then a lot of refreeze, and it's oh, like it's no snow anymore. Ice. It's just like thick ice flows yeah. everywhere. Uh, but, how did, how yeah, did you but, find uh, Falling Waters? I hear Falling Waters is like crampon material right now. Yeah, I kept my crampons on. It was like you know the. I don't know what it, it like the main waterfall like coming down that section there. Like there's no trees to hold on to. So that kind of sucked. I was just like, I just have to put as much weight as I can on the crampons. And there's one other section where that like, I don't know what that section is, but like there's no trees to hold on to. And you just have to sort of like, I went down backwards, I think. And I just sort of kickstep my crampons in and prayed for prayed for the best and made it down. But yeah, it's, it's sketchy. Yeah. So what made you go uh, counterclockwise? I always prefer to go up Old Bridal. I think the conventional wisdom is to go up Falling Waters because it's like dangerous going down, but I don't find it that big of a deal. Um, I just personally prefer the view when you're hiking on the ridge. I prefer the view of looking out to like 
um, liberty and flume and you know I just like it that way better. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah, sketchy, uh, sketchy though, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a little sketchy, but it was it was fine. And like, by the time I got to Little Haystack, like the cr- the crew, the crowds were coming up. There was like the dude with the like sh- the string backpack and like the sweatpants and the the sweatshirt, string backpack. Then, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh boy, he's he'll be there. But um, and then like when I was trying to haul that gear out, I was like asking people who were coming by, and I was like, hey, if you got a a trash bag, you know, you could take some of this gear. And like, I asked like two, three people if they wanted to help and they were just like, no, not interested. I was like, all right, whatever. I'll, I'll just leave it up here. So, um, that's why I posted on the Facebook page. Cause I was like, if anyone's going up there, bring a trash bag and you can haul the rest of the shit down. Cause I didn't, I couldn't take it all. So, yeah, but I don't know. It's probably still up there. Interesting. But it was fun. Hmm. I got a four thousand foot. I hadn't been on Lincoln in winter officially. So. Hell, yeah, it's that's pretty epic. That's awesome. Yeah. And Chaz, we're gonna hold on for you because we're gonna talk about all your madness in a couple minutes here. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you want to move on to the next segment? Yeah, yeah. So this is segment. Uh, this is our first segment with Cheswick. Yeah, Chaz, you you have the honor of being our fiftieth guest. That is pretty cool. Oh man, that's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> so really couldn't have planned it better. <laughs> You didn't ask me about my recent, you know, I I had a hike recently. All right. Well, let's hear it then. Well, where where are you located? No, I needed to, uh, where am I located? Yeah. Gorham, New Hampshire. You're in Gorham? Gorham. All right. But I needed, uh, I did a doozy. Um, I needed to update my Tinder profile pic so I went up uh, (laughs) Mount Willard and, uh, you know, (laughs) that view, uh, best view around. Right down, right down Crawford Yeah, notch. that's true. You get the notch. Yeah, I've heard about like Tinder. So, <laughs> I I've been married for like twenty. I'm just messing. I'm messing. I mean, I'm on it. But. Yeah, but but I guess I have this question. So I sure I'm like I've been married for like twenty plus years. So I don't really know. But I hear that the thing on like, and I don't know about Tinder, but like online dating, I hear that like it's very common for people. And I've seen this on like different videos and stuff where people will be like, I'm outdoorsy and I'm into hiking and they'll like put a poster, they'll put a picture up and then like these people that are, these girls that are like really into hiking, like they're like, oh, this guy hikes. And then like they get on a date and they find out that like the guy doesn't really hike. He just says that on his profile to look good. Right. So, but Cheswick, you got the real deal, the real deal. But, um, <laughs> I, met, I met a, I met a girl on one of those dating sites and she was only on it to find uh Hiking friends, so it didn't even work out. I was like, "Oh, all right." So I guess this isn't going anywhere. But well, you made a friend. <laughs> yeah, I don't need any more hiking. A friend friends. in high places. Oh. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, Stomp, I'll t- I'll let you do the intro here. Uh, so why don't you tell us how you got to become aware of Cheswick, and then he can he can he can kick it off and, and give us some more detail. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. So, I'm snowmobile guiding over at Bretton Woods, and I'm talking to the owner and uh, another guy named Mike, um, who's a pretty neat guy. He's into everything. Like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he's into search and rescue and all that. And we're talking about the recent um, or near recent. Um, 
confirmation that Tecumseh and a few other peaks are actually not 4,000 footers. So it's, it's just a hilarious conversation. And then we start talking about <clears throat> a recent incident also with uh, one of the uh, managers, um, Bear Dyer, who had a medical complication, ended up in ICU for a period of time. And all of a sudden I'm like, hey, if you guys do a uh, benefit, let us know. We'll uh, plug it on the podcast. So the owner starts going, you're on a podcast? Oh, cool. That's great. And this and that. And um, the conversation got cut short. I take a crew of people out for a tour for a couple hours and I come back. <laughs> and they're in the lot where we put all the, the sleds and they're still talking about the podcast. And all of a sudden, Pete, the owner looks at me and goes, hey, you know, you got to get this guy, Jeswick, on your podcast. He's epic. And then Mike's like, oh, hell yeah. He's the best. He's so funny and this and that. He's like really talking you up. And uh, the rest is history. So, yeah, he's a fellow guide. And, um, you know, they, they told me about some of his exploits briefly then. And then I found out that you were leaving soon, Ches. And I was like, oh, damn, we got to get him on before uh, he disappears for the next several months. So the rest is history. So, uh, yeah, Ches, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about yourself and we'll get the conversation rolling. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, born in North Conway, grew up in Bartlett. Um, did my first big hike was uh, the Mount Everest Base Camp Trek. I did that back in 2008 because I thought I wanted to maybe do some high altitude mountaineering but that stuff is just so expensive and then when I got to base camp and everyone was just not even happy you know being up at that altitude I think base camp was 17.5 and you know you're just it kind of feels like being hung over you have no energy you have no appetite you don't want to do anything you got a headache you know? like this this doesn't seem like too much fun um, that, so wait a minute. So, so were you were you aiming to get to the summit or just to the base camp, just to see? No, just to the base camp, and then uh, Kalapatar, which is like a mountain across from the base camp. It's eighteen five. Um, yeah. that was what we did. But mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to drop sixty five G's on, you know, a line to the top of Mount Everest, and so I did that, and then I didn't do really anything. Um, for a while until the end of 2014, my parents had a restaurant in Gorham that they were closing. They didn't want to do it anymore. And I was like out of a job and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, you know, I see all these AT hikers. I mean, maybe the AT would be like something cool to do. Um, so I went on, you know, internet just started looking it up. And then as I was scrolling through Google, uh, images, I came across this really cool environment. It looked like kind of Jurassic Park. And so I clicked on it and it was the Florida Trail. And I was like, Florida has a trail? Like, what the hell is this? And so I started thinking, maybe you can attach the Florida Trail with the AT. And that's when I came across the Eastern Continental Trail. So there was one book written about it called 10 Million Steps by nimble will nomad who just became the oldest guy to ever hike the at and he did it um back in 98 i think so anyway there isn't much other than his book that tells you um because you're connecting nine trails you know you have to do the florida trail you have to do the key west road walk you have 180 mile 
Alabama Roadwalk, which brings you to the Alabama Pinhoti Trail, which then goes to the Georgia Pinhoti Trail. Then you do 60 miles south on the Benton Mackay, which brings you to the AT. So almost 2,000 miles to the AT. Then you do the AT, and then after that, you do another 700 miles uh, to the <laughs> Gaspé Peninsula. So I didn't know anything about through hiking. It was more just like, well, I'm just going to start down you know, in Miami. I'm just going to start going north, and we'll just see what happens. Um, my pack was, geez, 45 pounds maybe without food. I mean, I had all the stupid shit that any beginner through hiker would have. But the funny thing was 10 minutes into this hike, I'm waist deep in Everglades swamp water. And it just like went for three or four days. It was, it was crazy. And, um, so anyway, yeah, that, I did that, that, that was 4,800 miles. It, I did it, um, 10 and a half months. I wasn't going for any record or anything. And, um, you know, I got, I got to Springer mountain, Georgia, not realizing that through hiking was like a big thing. And, and I, I just walked into the camp and there's like a hundred clean, happy hikers. They're all going from Georgia to Maine. They're all excited. And I'm, you know, I got blisters all over my feet. I'm soaking wet. My tent's broken. I'm in such a bad mood. <laughs> I never forget these two kids come, like, walk up to me. and one's like, Hi, I'm Timmy. And hey, I'm Jeff. And we're from San Francisco. And we're hiking the AT. What's your name? I'm like, I'm Cheswick. Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt really bad about it, but at the time I was just like so beat up. And uh, the next night I camped with them, and they were good kids. But yeah, so so that was my first hike. My first hike just happened to be one that was five thousand miles. Wow! Now with the so when you did the Everest base base camp trek, were you you were doing hiking and outdoor activity around New Hampshire to get get some experience, or were you not even doing hiking locally? No, nah, I mean. When you grow up around here, you don't look at it like the way people from, you know, down south do where they come up and it's like an event. You know, when you grow up in this area, it's just something that you have at your fingertips and you just do it. I never really – I trained a little bit for that hike, um, but I read a lot of books on high-altitude mountaineering. And things that they talk about is, you know, you force yourself to eat, you force yourself to drink. um, And a couple of guys that were on this trip with me out there, they weren't doing that. And they were hurting them. And my one guy that I was um, staying with every night on the trip, his name was Martin. He was a, a nuclear engineer from London. And he couldn't even make it to base camp. His um, blood oxygen was like 59. I mean, it was low. And, uh, wow. and they're, so they're checking your finger all the time with the pulse ox to make sure everyone is okay. Meanwhile, I'm like the young kid in this whole group of like, people that have all this money all well to do and i'm drinking i'm smoking i'm having a great time and they're just struggling to get up there but i always Mm, uh, last out of camp and i would always hike slow and increase my pace throughout the day and i was always the first into camp and um that was yeah that was an incredible trip but that's when i realized like i don't want to do high altitude stuff i'd rather do longer hikes but then i kind of put it on the back burner for you know seven years can you just touch upon um the uh the attitude at base camp again what was your sense why were the people there so disgruntled yeah so like you know you watch you see movies and they're like partying at base camp and they're all happy and that was my impression of what it was going to be like 
And when I got there, it wasn't like that at all. You're just struggling to survive at that altitude. So if you're going to climb Everest, once you arrive at base camp, you know, you're there for a while, you know, just getting used to it. And you don't feel good. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's a really strange place. You're on a glacier and everything's got to be hammered out, all the tent platforms. And, you know, that's why when you're doing it, going up Everest, that's why they're going to go base camp up through the Kumbu Icefall to advanced base camp, stay overnight, go up to camp one, stay overnight, back down to advanced base camp, then back down through the Kumbu, back to base camp, stay there for a couple of days. And you kind of do that several times up and down to get used to the acclimation. Um, because that's the problem is you just get so lethargic. You know, that guy mm-hmm. that did the 14 summits, you know, he's a Nepalese guy. He's used to being at yeah, that altitude. He was born up there. So, um, right. an incredible feat to do what he did, but it would be so yeah. hard, I think, for a Westerner to, to go and try and do something like that when you're just not born in that area. Cause my Sherpas and my porters, man, they're wearing tennis shoes. They're running up and down the trail. It's like nothing. And we're all kind of just struggling to do, you know, a 10-mile day. Wow. And I have this idealized, uh, you know, in my mind. And I, I get what you're saying about base camp. Like, that doesn't surprise me. I think that there's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of work, it seems like, from the videos that, I, that I've that i watched on it. But, like, I sort of have this idealized view in my mind of, like, the trek to base camp. Like, I know there's, like, some tours that you can do from, like, Kathmandu to, like, base camp or whatever. Um, did you find that those those the hikes where you were in the lower regions was it as awesome as i as it it seems like it is to me or is it also st- sort of a grind when you're you're dealing with elevation even below base camp? no man it, i mean it's it's absolutely incredible I, the towns the people i mean it's one of those trips that i think everyone that likes to hike should just sack up drop 10 g's and go and do it because not only is the the trek and you're flying from Kathmandu into Lukla, which is a Sherpa village at 9,400 feet, you're flying into the most dangerous airport in the world, which I didn't know at the time, but it's like a runway off of a cliff. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, Kathmandu in itself is like so far removed from anything that any Westerner knows. I mean, there's no infrastructure. I mean, there's, you know, monkeys running around and cows sitting in the middle of the street, and four people on a motorcycle and it's usually like a five-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and then the dad's driving, and he's the only one with a helmet on. I mean, there's trash-filled rivers and <laughs> bodies being burned. I mean, it's, it's insane. So, I mean, it was just such an eye-opening experience. But when you get up into the Himalayas and you start approaching the big ones and you see, you know, uh, Ama de Blom, and then you start, and then you can finally see Everest, it's like, it's incredible. I mean, but it's a low desert hike. If you're in a desert, you know, and as you increase in altitude, then you start going over some insane river crossings. But they were boiling all of our water because, you know, up there, you know, people are doing whatever they have to do around all of those water sources. So, you know, the Sherpas are giving you, you know, six to eight liters of water a day, but it's all warm water when you get it. So it's kind of weird to drink. Yeah. But, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's pretty And the cool thing is, you can only get like Pringles chips up there because it's the only chip that's in a container that won't get crushed. And as you, oh, as yeah. you go True. higher, Everest whiskey, the toilet paper, the chips, whatever it is, it starts increasing in price because 
the cost of having a, a porter bring that up, you know, costs more. And it's only rupees, you know, which, you know, doesn't really translate. Like five rupees is nothing, but you start to haggle and penny pinch and stuff. But, um, yeah, man, I, it's, it's pretty rad. It was a good trip. Wow. I want to go stomp. Well, it's a Let's neat, go. It, it's a beautiful culture anyway, the spirituality of the people there. And, I mean, it, they may be living in poverty to a point, uh, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful people, beautiful culture. I might, my personal Sherpa, Lakpa, he did two guided trips a year to base camp and back because I, I went with Mountain Madness which was originally, okay, okay. you know, created by uh, Scott Fisher, who died on Everest in, into thin air. Mm -hmm. sure. So uh, he did two, you know, there's a, a bunch of Sherpas, but he got paid uh, $200 American to go from Lukla to base camp and back. And so that $400 he made, he told me, would pay for him, his wife, and his two kids for nine months out of the year. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Amazing. Very crazy. And you're dropping, you know, forty some forty. I think it was forty three hundred dollars to go with the Mountain Madness outfit, and there was, you know, ten of us. So it's forty three grand, and they're giving the Sherpas, you know, a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> so you must have done your homework on um, some of these guiding outfits. I, I know that there are some outfits where you can get out there cheap, but you're putting your life at risk. Is that right? Um, well, the trek to base camp, you know, it's it's not dangerous really at all. I mean, I met... But beyond that. But beyond that, If you're heading yeah. up. If you're heading up. I mean, like, if you go from the popular Southeast Ridge route, which is, you know, the Nepal side of Everest, you know, everyone wants to do the Hillary step. And that's, you know, the last 60-foot pitch before you do the 300 feet to the summit of Everest. And um, But to get to that, you have to go through the Kumbu. And when you're acclimating, you have to go up and down through the icefall. And when you're staying at base camp, you're hearing it move all night because, you know, it's a slow-moving river. And that's, you know, what happened in 2015 when, you know, all those Sherpas died. And then the lack of pay that they get is why they finally put their foot down. And I was like, listen, <laughs> we're doing all the work. So whenever you meet someone that says, I climbed Everest, it's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe you put one foot in front of the other. But you didn't set the fixed lines. You didn't carry your food. You didn't pitch the tents. These people will pay sixty grand. They get to these camps, and there's a Sherpa there that will bring them tea and have a hot meal for them and have it all set up. And those guys are the ones that are, you know, really risking their lives. And they were getting paid well to do it. Well, and the water situation there. So part of what you and we'll get into sort of your your current hiking situation in in a little while, but. Part of um, what you try to do is fundraising for clean water, and and I don't really think about this too much. I mean, like, you, I hike in the whites all the time, and I'm a weekend warrior, and you can pretty much bring my filter anywhere and just grab water in the whites anywhere I, I, I need to. But, like, there's places in the world where access to fresh water is not readily available, and especially Africa and, and um countries where you have heavy desert regions so can you talk a little bit about was it was it this Everett Everest um hike that sort of clicked for you that like clean water access was it was a big problem throughout the world or what what motivated you to get get interested in that I mean when you're out west it doesn't rain it just doesn't and you know California is basically gets their water from Colorado aqueduct 
And, you know, this last year, in 4,000 miles and four months of hiking, it rained on me twice for an hour. And, you know, it's just one of those things we don't think about on the East Coast because water is so prevalent up here. But, you know, in Africa, in a lot of these places, the only water source they have are these trash-filled feces-surrounded pools. And they've got to fill up their jerry cans after walking five miles and then walk back. And they're going to use what they've carried for everything. You know, and when you live in a first world country like ours, you don't even think about it. Water to brush your teeth, water to clean your clothes, water to drink, water to bathe, water to cook with. But when you're out on the trail out west, water is just as important as the shoes you're wearing, maybe even more important than the food that you have. And I didn't really understand what it was like to not have water at my fingertips until I started through hiking out there. Because on the AT, you can hike it from beginning to end. Basically, you never have to carry more than two liters at a time. I think there's a section in Pennsylvania where it's like a shitty water section. But other than that, it's, it's nothing. But, you know, out west, it's, it's bad. It's a serious drought situation. And... You know, luckily we have, we live in a country where we have the infrastructure to be able to, to help people. But, you know, in these third world countries in Africa and stuff, I mean, they're, they're struggling just for that. And it creates a lot of disease and it's, it's really bad. So um, I just happened to see this uh, segment on Sports Center about Chris Long, the uh, expatriate football player, and how he started this foundation to build wells in the most needed areas in the world and i thought you know if i'm doing a big hike that very few people do or could do you know i should start a foundation i should you know bring some awareness to this and at least help out and so that's what i did i just called it the fill it up foundation i put it on my website and people that click on that can donate it brings them right to the chris long foundation and it breaks it down if you donate $8, you're helping one person get clean drinking water for life. $30 is a family of four. $100 is uh, stopping, I think it's 1,500 hours of that jerry can walking. So it doesn't cost a lot to make a huge impact um, doing that. But it's hard for people to think about it when you can turn on a faucet and get water all the time. When you can go to a restaurant and someone's always like, at a, you know, I always remember this, you know, parties of six or eight and someone will go, oh, well, let's start with a round of waters for the table. And then after they leave, all it. those waters are filled. I just got to dump them out. And um, so, yeah. yeah, bringing that awareness to, to people that you know, don't really even recognize that's a problem is, is something that I, I think is important. So, yeah, that's that's why I did it. And uh, I'm happy I did yeah. it, you know. Yeah, no, it's cool. And it, honestly, like, I don't think about it that much either. Like when I was doing research and I was on your website, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I know I know about this. I've heard about this before. But, I, you know, like you said, you don't think about it that much. So we'll make sure that we link that in the show notes so people can donate if they want to the Chris Long Foundation. Um, and as far as like your water strategy, when you were doing the, um, you know, when you, you were doing the, 
Eastern Continental, were you filtering water or were you just saying, but did you get to a point where you were like, screw it, I just, I'm sick of filtering. Like, I'm just going to drink right from the, uh, wherever I get my water source. Absolutely, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm always yeah, curious about that. I just, when I see, I, I, well, you have to filter in the Everglades because the Everglades yeah. is black, dirty swamp water, like dissolved limestone crap. So you got to filter that. And you want to filter, you know, Alabama's got a lot of trash on the side of the roads. And um, so you want to filter that stuff. And then I filtered for the first, like, 200 miles of the AT because it gets so inundated with people um, that you just want to be careful. But once all those people, you know, decide they just want to sit on their ass and play on their phones and watch Netflix and fuck off the trail, then the trail opens up and it's safer to drink that water. So then from, like... I think it was Virginia to Canada. I didn't filter at all. And I don't filter in the whites because okay. this water is really good. But then God. in Quebec somewhere, I remember filling up my water bottle and just chugging it. And as I'm chugging it, I look up and I just see cows and farmland like above me. I'm like, oh, fuck. And then not good. <laughs> a little leeching. I was laid up with dysentery for like four days because of it. Um, and actually, I got I got dysentery in Kathmandu too. Because yeah, I mean that water's even the stuff that comes out of the hotel faucets isn't good. So yeah, I just I just didn't filter for that section, and I didn't filter last time on the PCT, except for one time. Um, but yeah, if it's flowing water. Generally, I don't filter. If it's standing water, if it's water from a, like a cow trough, then I'll filter it. But for the most part, I, I don't. Yeah, for our listeners, I mean, I grew up just drinking the, um, you know, Alpine Springs without any issue whatsoever. So um, what are your suggestions about that? I mean... Good to go? Good I mean, to go. I've never had a problem. If I you think, think so about, too. Yeah, I mean, if you think about a deer that you know doing his business a hundred yards up the river from where you're getting your water the chances of you scooping up what he just did in your water bottle is so slim because water moves at such a high rate of speed it's it's very rare you really have to be more careful of people people are dirty trail animals not that bad you know, animals don't usually do their business around water sources. They just know. But, um, yeah, I mean, I met some guys that were filtering in Glacier National Park. And I stopped. They're like, are you kidding me? They're like, well, you know, we don't know. I'm like, dude, your filter is dirtier than the water that you're getting. Like, what? Are you crazy? But, you know, everyone's exactly. in this mindset now that you got to filter. you got to filter. And it's big business to think you need a Sawyer Squeeze. And, and honestly – you don't in a lot of a lot of these places you don't um, yeah yeah interesting yeah and i'm i i think i'm gonna experiment a little bit more without filtering this this summer and see how it goes but one thing i wanted to talk a little bit more about sort of the at and the eastern side um but before we get into that i'm curious i am you know i'm coming up on 50 cheswick and oh my God. yeah i don't really think man. about yeah i don't I'm an old man, so but I sort of like it. It makes me sort of ponder about life. Like, so I had like the typical sort of went to college, you know. I moved to Boston, lived with my friends for like four or five years. I met my wife. I got engaged. We got married. 
had the kids, bought the house, had the minivan, did the whole life. I picked up hiking as sort of like an extension of running. Like I just needed an outlet for my mental health. But I was reading a little bit about your biography and, you know, you talk a little bit about you did the Everest Base Camp trek. You sort of got a little bit of a bug on on adventure and then you spent a certain amount of years sort of working and, and living your life. And at some point you you just sort of felt like there was a a hole there or something you needed to do to change things up. And that brought you to the trail somehow. So can you talk a little bit about, and I want the, for the audience's sake, like there's a, I think our audience skews a little bit older, but there's young people too that listen. And I feel like it's important for people to understand that like, you don't just need to do the grind of like, go to college, get your degree or, or learn a trade and start working right away. Like there's other avenues in life. So I guess I'd be curious to know sort of like, what was it like for you as a young person trying to find your way and, and how did you sort of finally figure out like, you know what, I, I want to get on the trail from, you know, I want to get, I want to step off the treadmill and get on the trail. Yeah. Well, you know, when you grow up in the, the Mount Washington Valley, you know, you're in a ski town and ski towns are big party scenes. And, you know, I started bartending, you know, right out of high school at uh, a, night, a good restaurant, you know, and it was good. The money was good. And, I kind of got lost in it and um, you know I guess it got to a point where you know I, I didn't know what I wanted to do so going to college I thought well why am I going to go there if I don't I don't want a hundred thousand dollars debt with a communications degree or a marketing degree and then not use it that was always my thing so I just you know School of Hard Knocks. And my parents were in the restaurant business. That's what I knew. They had a couple of restaurants. So that was just something that I did. But when you're in that, you're not eating well and you're up late and you're drinking a lot. And it, you know, after, you know, 10 years of it, it, it started to wear on me. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that if I just started walking, and I had a goal of, you know, Canada, however long it took, I was just going to do it. Because I, I really knew that, you know, nothing bad's going to come out of this. Only good things are going to come out of this, you know. And so, yeah, I just basically, the, my, like I said, my parents' restaurant, they, they closed it and it, it was at a perfect time. And so I had nothing to lose. I had you know, just, I'd saved a couple of grand and I just started going. I had no idea what it was going to open up for me. Um, and then, you know, you get to the Appalachian trail and then you, you see that there's this subculture that I had no idea about. And it was such an eye opening thing. And the people that you meet and the conversations you have, and some of the people that I met on that trail are still my, my very good friends to this day. Um, and I always, I would meet older people and they would say, you know, I just, I wish I had done this earlier. And you met a lot of uh, kids that hadn't gone to college yet and they were taking this time to really think about what they wanted to do. Because when you get out there and do an Appalachian Trail or a Colorado Trail, whatever it is, you know, everything gets quiet. You have no distractions. When you get into town you know, you're hearing cars, you're seeing TVs, you got playing on your phone. All that goes away when you're out there. 
And then you can just focus on yourself and you can start thinking about your life, you know, things that have led up to this point, things that you want to do after the hike. And I think that so many kids shouldn't rush to go right from high school to college. I mean, 17 years old, you're making a monumental decision that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. You should take some time. And the kids that were taking the time to do the trail, I mean, that was, I really envied them because I wish that I had done it that way. And um, yeah, once you cut everything out and everything gets quiet and you're able to hike and focus without distractions, it's, it's really incredible. And then you kind of get addicted to that solitude you know, because now it's just you against the trail, you know, and it's the most honest thing you can do is hiking a trail. You know? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, I love it. I really do. I mean, it's hard. It's not easy, but, you know, it's easier in some ways than the partying, drinking lifestyle that I had before. You know, in just going back to Miami when you set foot on the trail. So you had a period where, so the AT is sort of like the traditional sort of pipeline. Like you'll meet your friends, you get a trail family, you, you know, it's very supported. But the Florida trail, I think is especially, I think it's more popular now, but um, my guess is that like you didn't see a ton of people on the Florida trail. Were you, were you pretty isolated from Florida yeah. up in Alabama before you got on the AT? Oh, absolutely. I think I saw uh, six people hiking segments of the, uh, Florida trail. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there were two other people attempting the ECT the year that I did it and they both got off, um, on the AT somewhere. They, they didn't complete it, but yeah, I mean, that was, it was so weird to start in Miami and then, cause the, the Florida trail is, <laughs> It's not like any other trail. And when people say, oh, I've seen pictures of that trail, I, I, don't, I don't really think I want to do it. But I'm, I always say you should do it because it's like no other trail. You know, you don't follow one path. I mean, the AT is the only one where basically it doesn't use roads. I think in Gorham here, there's like a one-mile road section, and that's it. But all these other trails are newer, and to get, you know, the trail onto private land and use it, I mean, it takes forever. And AT is what, like 80, 90 years old, and it still has a road walk. But on the Florida Trail, you do a section in the Everglades, for example, and then you've got, you know, 30 miles of backwoods roads. And then you go into the woods for five miles, and you go back out onto the highway, and you walk that for 20 miles, and you're back into the woods for 15 miles and back out for 40. So it's just kind of linked together in this really weird way. Um, but then once you go up into the panhandle, instead of continuing to the end of the Florida trail, you have to take a right and go north. Um, and North Florida is crazy. The people are crazy too. But then you get in, you have to do 180 mile Alabama road walk, you know? So that's something you just have to commit to and deal with. You go, you know, right through Montgomery <laughs> and I happened to be going through the day that it was uh, the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's March to the Capitol building. So I walked right oh, into wow. the middle of this thing and it was drizzling out. So I had my backpack on and my black pack cover and the cops were looking at me. They thought like maybe I brought a bomb or something. I don't know. But then uh, 
and then yeah, you 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 peel out of there. Eventually, you get on to uh, the Alabama Pinhoti Trail, and that one is. I think I, I was on that for 170 miles, and then you get onto the uh, the uh, Georgia Pinhoti Trail. That was 160, and then yeah, 60 miles south to uh, to Springer Mountain, which I didn't know. I just took a right and started going north, and I was almost out of food until about 10 miles down that trail. I realized I had to turn around. But how far into the Florida hike did you go before you were like, I got to dial in my 45 pound pack? No, honestly, it took me a little while because, you know, the whole idea of long distance hiking is to learn what you can and can't go without. And for me, being my first one, I didn't know what I could go without. So it took a while. It took like losing stuff, breaking stuff, and then just not having it to realize, you know what, I really, I don't need this. Um, But by the time I got to the end of the Smoky Mountains, I did a massive pack shakedown. And I ended up with like a a 20-pound base weight. But up until then, it was like slow little pieces here and there that I'd just be getting rid of or shedding, you know. But it wasn't like this one aha moment of like, I need to get rid of all this stuff. It didn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. Because I always picture like I know that like uh, there's Neil's Gap where like most of the through high. I just sort of think of in terms of the AT. And I know that like there, there's like the Neil's Gap where you can go in and sort of get the shakedown and a lot of oh, Mount Frost. It's a typical story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but you don't have that in the Florida Trail, like. And were you like for me? And I, I'd have to, I have to ask this question because if I don't, like listeners will be like, "Why? How could you not ask this?" But like alligators, snakes, like I've hiked in Florida, man, right. and I've right. been faced with these scenarios where I got to walk through a trail that's like knee deep black water, and I'm like, I'm tap, I tap out because I'm like, I'm done. I'm not going in that water because I don't know what the hell's in there. There's brain eating amoebas in Florida. There's snakes. There's like <laughs> alligators. I'm not touching that shit. Like, how did you make it through there mentally? I would have been. I wouldn't make it. I. That's funny because I've actually done that section two more times since I did the ECT, yeah. just because it's so. Yeah. Cool. But I didn't do a lot of research. It was literally like the restaurant closed. I think it was like December fourteenth, and then I flew out two weeks later. So it was kind of an ignorant thing. I just I didn't think about it, but I I, I guess I had the mindset like they wouldn't put a trail in this area if. I had this huge chance of being killed. And, you know, a lot of those animals, they will see you before you see them, and they usually get out of your way. Alligators, nah, you see them, but it's it's nothing. Water moccasins, they're just kind of cruising around. It was the the banana sp- the golden orb spiders were the, the things, because I hate spiders. And they would cast yeah. these massive webs across the trail. And in the morning, you know, I would just have my trekking pole out and I'd just be like whacking these these uh, <laughs> webs as I was going, man. So that, that oh my God. always yeah. freaked me out. But, you know, night hiking in that stuff was crazy. So I would, I'd put my headlamp on at like 9 o'clock at night and just start going. And you're, you're like looking around and you're just seeing eyes just looking at you as you're, as you're going and you like bump into something and it hits your leg and you're like, oh, I wonder what that was, you know? Yeah, like, and you buy totally by yourself. There's no trail family, no, no, no like. Nothing. And I, I still, I still prefer like by 
Perfect. Yeah, it's like the bugs are like prehistoric down there. It was yeah, it was it was crazy. But the thing is, is like in that section, you can only camp where there's high ground. You can't just say, "Well, I'm going to pitch right here" because it's all underwater. So you have to mm-hmm. make it to the next camp. So if you don't make it by the time <laughs> the sun goes down, you got to keep pushing. And thing about that section was, you know, when the sun was up to when the sun went down, you were good. But anytime when the sun was down, the mosquitoes, man, they were just ferocious, absolutely ferocious. And so that, that was, uh, that was tough too. Can't imagine. Now, did you have any doubts? Like, were you ever just like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pack it in and this isn't for me? Or were you pretty pretty solid the whole time before you got to the 18th? I was pretty solid because I, I thought, you know, oh, I can quit, but I got nothing to go back to. I don't have a family. I don't have a pet. I don't have a home. I mean, so what, what are my options? <laughs> I just keep going. It's awesome. You know? And so, yeah, it, I think that's another reason why a lot of people will quit these things is because, you know, they've got these commitments back home. And for someone like me that doesn't, it's easier for me to keep going because what's the alternative? Um, so there wasn't any doubt. I mean, there's sometimes you get down on yourself or you're frustrated, but, you know, you, you just got to get through it. It's going to make you a better person. It's going to make you a better hiker. Um, you know, overcoming those obstacles because after a couple of weeks – you get your feet under you, your legs get strong. So now it's a mental game. It's how long can I be cold, wet, tired, eating oatmeal, you know, being dirty. And some people can only handle that mentally for a couple of weeks. Some people can handle it for a couple of months. Some people can handle it for an AT distance. I found on the ECT, I happen to be one of those people that can kind of just go as long as it takes. And in that case, it was ten and a half months. Hmm. So you, amazing, you, yeah. So you make your way to the Appalachian Trail. So most of these through hikers are like their biggest question in life is like, am I going to go up Amicalola Falls or am I going to start at like Springer Mountain? Yeah. And you roll in as a smelly, um, battled, yeah. hardened mess. I came in the backside. <laughs> so I remember. Cool. <laughs> I came in the backside. I remember, man. And there was this like Joe Cool like hiker dude wearing like short, short running shorts and a tank top, talking to some like day hikers, like doing the AT man. He's so cool. And I kind of like stumbled up to them, and they looked at me. <laughs> they said, "What are you doing?" And I'm like. I just hiked from Miami. Where's Springer Mountain? <laughs> and uh, I just kind of stumbled past him. And the Joe Cool dude was kind of like, "Oh, I'm not that awesome, you know." But uh, there was a, I heard a, I heard a story of a guy cool that there was a guy brought a uh, inflatable raft on the AT because he heard there was a lot of river crossings. That one that one really cracked me up. That was good. But then you so you you talk about Neil's Gap and uh, that's Mountain Crossings Outfitter. That's that's probably one of the, the coolest yep. outfitters I've ever seen. But when I got to the parking lot, I saw like 30 UPS boxes. And I said to somebody, I go, what, did they just get a delivery? And they go, no, that's all people's gear that was just shaken down that they're sending home. So, I mean, people will start these wow. things thinking they need all of this bullshit. And you want to be comfortable in movement. You don't want to think about 
well, I want to have all this comfort when I'm camping. Because when you're in your tent and you're sleeping, you know, you got to carry all that stuff. So the people that go ultralight, you know, they really enjoy the act of movement, you know, because that's what you're doing most of the time. Um, I mean, there are people that are just bringing some ridiculous. There was this girl that had a hairdryer that she would send up the trail. So every time she got into town, she could blow dry her hair. I mean, it's amazing what people can't <laughs> live without on those trails. And when you have a four, you know, a 50 pound pack, your hiking day is miserable. All you think about is just wanting to get to camp. And until you realize that you don't need all that bullshit, you know, you're not going to enjoy the hike because you're not supposed to be miserable, uncomfortable. It's supposed to be this challenge of moving up and down the trail. So you have to learn to go without. And if you can't, you're not going to succeed. When you got on the AT, obviously, like you had already sort of learned your system, and you know you're looking at these sort of newer hikers. At, at what point did you sort of let your guard down, and and did you sort of fully embrace the the social aspect of the AT, or did you did you sort of take the position that you were going to be more standoffish and and just sort of be isolated. Cause I would imagine like you were probably pretty comfortable being by yourself. And then now you're in a, in a situation, especially from Georgia up to like North Carolina, you're going to see a pretty good crowd of people. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was cool to, to see that camaraderie and everything. But you know, for me, I knew that once I got to Katahdin, I still had 700 miles to go. And you know, you're, you're basically chasing winter when you're doing that, that hike. So, mm-hmm. The goal was to do the AT in 100 days. So I did the first half in 49, and I was just blown by everybody. And I stopped at Harper's Ferry, which is more or less the halfway point of the AT. And I had a buddy that lived in D.C., so he picked me up, and he, he brought me in. And you know We're drinking and having a good time, and we go bowling, and I hurt my knee. And I'm like, are you kidding me, man? I just hiked 3,000 <laughs> miles and I fuck up my knee bowling in D.C. So I end up laying on his couch for nine days resting until I could, oh. you know, walk good. And then I get back to the AT. That's a good chunk of time. <laughs> I get back to the AT and uh, all the people that I had passed in the first 49 days caught up to me. And I thought, you know, there's no guarantees that I'll ever do this trail again. Why don't I take the second half and I'll, you know, hang out with some people. I'll take my time and I'll have some fun. And so I ended up doing the second half in a hundred days. And, uh, yeah, it it was great. You know, um, it was great up until I got Lyme's disease, uh, and was laid up for a week in Stormville, New York. Cause some sections of the AT have a lot of uh, money to be able to, to do trail maintenance, but New York, ran out and so the trail got super overgrown and you know the ticks down there that carry it are are tiny you think it's a speck of dirt and then as you're like trying to just wipe it off you realize that speck of dirt's not coming off and as you look closer you're like holy shit that's a tick and by the time you see that basically you've got it and luckily it's too yeah, late, it's too late. Mm. And luckily for me too small i was uh stage two so I decided to take two hits of LSD and go skydiving, and then <laughs> later, <laughs> then hung out for five days 
and just took this doxycycline stuff, which absolutely just throttles you. Like, last thing you want to do is hike on this shit. And I would hike, mm-hmm. like, two miles and then just sleep in my tent for 10 hours until yeah. my body would just kind of come around. And uh, it took it took a few weeks. But, yeah, I, I was happy that I slowed down. I was happy to, to hike with the people. But it was really weird coming down into Pinkham Notch and being like, man, I hiked from Miami, Florida to here. This is really weird because that's, you know, that's where I live. Almost like, home. Yeah. I walked, Almost. I walked, I fucking walked here. So that, yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, and then as you're, you get, you get through Grafton Notch and you get into Maine, like I would assume that now you're thinking like, okay, I'm going to hit Katad and I got another 700 miles to go. Everybody else is sort of thinking about like, okay, I've got to face real life. You're thinking like, I've got to face another 700 miles of, of, solitude what was going through your head were you looking forward to embracing that or was that like dreadful for you and thinking like oh man i I don't know how i'm going to adjust being back to really just being the only person around for for days and days honestly what i was thinking about was how i was going to sneak into canada because i had two dwis i wasn't allowed to go in through a border they were going to turn me around I, so uh, I yeah, had to. That's a good point. So I had to make a route um, and figure that out. So that was kind of on my mind from, yeah, Maine north was you know you you can see Katahdin and then um, you know as you get closer you're like wow okay so once I got to Katahdin and there's all these other hikers and they're up there and they're crying I can't believe it. yeah okay see ya and um so that was my my focus was how the hell do i get into canada without getting busted so i went into millinocket which is the town that all the the eight tiers uh once they finish they go into because then you can shoot over to bangor and you can fly out or whatever and i met this uh car camping couple and they gave me a cell phone because when i did the ect i didn't have a smartphone i had a a flip phone with no camera, paper maps, and a compass. So I didn't have like gut hooks or any any apps. I didn't know anything about it. Um, but this guy gave me a phone, and he downloaded like a Gaia. And so when I got to uh, Mars Hill, um, Maine, which is right near the border, I was able to plot a course over Mars Hill Ski Mountain. So I camped next to a cabbage patch, <laughs> and at 3 in the afternoon, I started walking towards the border, so that when I crossed, it would be when the sun was going down. And then so I, I crossed in into some farmland. And then I had to get across the Transcontinental Highway, which is like an eight-lane. Get across that. And then I had to walk about 20 miles of road to get to this one bridge that went over this massive river. Like a massive river. You can't ford it. And uh, every time a car was coming, I didn't know if it was a cop. So I just like bail out over the guardrail and then wait for them to leave and then continue on. And then I, oh, wow. Yeah. So the, as I approach, this was like three in the morning and I'm getting to this bridge and I can see it. I'm like, okay, if I can just get over that bridge, I can get back into the woods and now I'm golden. Okay. I'm in Canada. I'm good. As I get close, I'm walking underneath a street lamp and two, border patrol cars pull up to the bridge and I'm like, Oh shit. So I bail into the bushes 
And this dog just starts going crazy in the, in this next to this house I was at. And I watch through the woods as the two border patrol agents drive across the bridge, go into a park lot on the other side, and it's like they were talking. Now in my mind I'm thinking, Oh man, they saw me, this is it, it's over. I've gone, you know, four thousand miles, whatever, it's done. And then they turn around and they drive back over the bridge and they get to the other side. They continue the way they had come. So as soon as they were out of sight, I just got up and I just started running as fast as I could to the bridge, got on the bridge, ran <laughs> fast as I could across the river. And right as I got to the other side of the river, a car pulls up. I'm like, oh, shit. I look, it's just this shitty 92 Honda Civic. And so I get across and I like hide behind a dumpster. And I'm like, okay, now I'm over here now. Now what do I do? And then I eventually just made it onto the trail again, which was like this old railroad bed. And that got me back into the woods. So that that whole section, I'm just thinking about, okay, if anybody asked me, you know, what I'm doing here or looks for my, asked for my identification, I have to have like a plan for this. <laughs> well, sure enough, three days later, a cop stops me on the side of the road and he's like, what are you doing? And I pretended like I hadn't seen anybody in so long. So I'm like, Hi, my name's Cheswick, and I hike for Miami. And this is really great. And, da, 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 da. and he kind of was, okay, that's good. Have a good day. And he just wanted to get the hell out of the situation. Whoa. And it worked. Well, so when you and when you hit Canada, so basically you got to hike up through New Brunswick. You've got to get to the tip of Quebec. Mm -hmm. And then you take a ferry to Prince Edward Island. Is that right? No, no, no. The the. the the IAT goes to Gaspe Peninsula. So it's actually a complete okay. landmass that you basically okay. just, you start at an ocean, you walk to that ocean. So you, you walk to the end and then you, you can't go any farther. And when I got to the end, there was nobody there. There was just a guy eating a sandwich. And he's like, where'd you start hiking from? I said, Miami, Florida. And he stops chewing for a second. He's like, you want me to take your picture? Yeah. <laughs> and then so my, you my, say you you, you no, say you you were chasing winter. So what month was this by the time you're up in Canada? October twenty fourth was when I wow yeah Holy so moly. I, so so late December and then you finish in October. Yeah, and I I got hypothermic uh, three days before the end. I absolutely froze. I ran out of food. Some asshole on a four-wheeler ran over my tent stakes and I was pitched next to his trail. Um, yeah, I got, I was, you know, wow. when you're cold and wet and you're just in your sleeping bag shivering and eventually you know you're going to have to roll over, it's like the worst feeling in the world. And uh, yeah, that that was cold. I mean, it started, you know, it was moose season, moose hunting season too. So I was dealing with not getting wanting to get shot by these French Canadian hunters. So that was that was interesting too. But um yeah, it was cold, man. Well, so you wrap up the ECT and then do you go back you, you go back to normal life or or somewhat normal life, right? Yeah, I mean is it's a weird feeling cuz you're doing this thing for so long and then you finish and people know that you did it. But a lot of people, you know, that I would know from the valley would be like, well, how was the hike? And as you start to get into it, you just notice after 20 seconds, their eyes are kind of just trailing off. 
So it just eventually got to a point where I was just saying it was good because they don't understand it. They'll never understand it. And there's just no point in explaining it. Um, and it's hard to come back because now, you know, you have everything at your fingertips. I'm never hungry anymore. I'm never tired anymore. I'm s- it took me a week to be able to sleep in a bed again because it was just, I was just so used to sleeping on the ground in my tent. And so you're, you gotta, you know, readjust. And there's a thing they call, you know, post hike depression. And I always thought it was yeah. bullshit and I get it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a thing. Um, yeah, we've so touched hard, upon this a couple to, times, Mike. Yeah, it was hard. To, it's hard to to wrap your head around it, you know, because it's not like you finish one of these things and you expect a ticker tape parade, but you, you know, you just accomplished something that was extremely difficult that very few people have done, and yeah, you're just back to your regular life. So, um, yeah, since then, you know, I, I just know that when I finish, it's I'm just you know don't need to explain it to a lot of people. The ones that really are engaging and curious, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it with, but, um, the average person, it's kind of just, yeah, it was a good hike. I had fun. Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, did you see that thing on Facebook yesterday? And it's like, yeah, there we go again. <laughs> now you're, so you took some time and then you, you sort of, from the experience, you said, I want to keep going, and you kind of doubled, you, you pretty much doubled down on, like, crazy hikes, and you, you started looking out west, right? Yeah, I mean, the natural progression, uh, you know, is the triple crown, right? So, it's the AT, the PCT, and the CDT. So, I took a year, and then in 2017, I attempted the PCT. Um, that was a one of the worst years to go. They call it the year of fire and ice. The Sierras got absolutely smushed with snow and the forest fires were completely inundating the, the West coast. I mean, it was, it was absolutely insane. There was fires behind me, fires in front of me, your eyes are burning. And, uh, yeah, that was a really, really bad year to do it. I don't know many people in 2017 that started in Mex- on the border of Mexico and hiked a continuous footpath to Canada. I think a lot of people got to the Sierras. There was way too much snow. They shot up and then hiked south. We call that snowboweing. And a lot of people did that. And if, in, um, very few people even were able to accomplish the PCT that year doing that because uh, California, Northern California gets fires every year. You can guarantee it. And then that particular year... Oregon caught on fire and then some teenage kids were messing around with fireworks near Cascade Locks and they started a fire which then connected with this other fire and it was just this massive inferno so yeah yeah I hiked out there a couple like a year and a half two years afterwards and it was like crazy the forest was just like crazy like it was just burnt the trees were all out there and it was it's kind of beautiful when you look at it and I get some good pictures but it's like all the trees were just scorched yeah it was crazy yeah, the burn areas were are bad I mean I lost count of how many burn areas I went through this last year I mean I'd say 30 maybe you know, all different phases, some from five years ago, some from one from last year or two years ago. It was still kind of smoldering. It was still, you know, you had ash and soot everywhere. I mean, yeah, it's no joke, man. It was. 
It's crazy. crazy. So you you did the PCT in 2017. Well, I did. And, and, I did 1,600 miles of it, but then okay. forest fires. It was like this is this is ridiculous because I wouldn't have been able to to finish it the way I want, you know. Because um, hmm. for me, you hike the trail from beginning to end, and anything you encounter as you're doing it is is what you're supposed to do. And so many people now, well they skip sections for various reasons. Then they get to the end and they're like, I hiked the PCT. And it's like, no, you didn't. Well, yeah, I, I skipped a hundred <laughs> miles of it. It's like, yeah, well you tell a day hiker, you skipped a hundred miles. That's a lot of miles. And so, yeah, once I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do it the way that I wanted to, which was 2,600 and whatever miles, I was like, you know, I'll just do it. I'll try it again. Another time. I just didn't realize at the time it was going to be a, 6,850 mile hike. Yeah. And what, at what point did you, did you lock in the Western loop? Uh, this has been on my mind since the top of Georgia hostel on the AT back in 2015 when I was on the ECT, but I didn't know it was called the great Western loop. I was saying, I wonder if there's a way you can connect the PCT and the CDT. It was only until, three years ago that um, I read about Andrew Skirka doing it back in 2008. And then this other guy, Jeff Garmeyer, did it 10 years later, and no one had done it in between. And they both did it in 208 days. Um, that's why I want to I want to break the 208-day mark. Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, their average was 32.9 miles a day. And when I broke my foot, I was at 33.6. So I had them. So that's why I'm going back to do it again, because I'm so pissed off. <laughs> God, all right. So what year did you did you do the, the 4,000 miles? Well, the 4,000? Uh, you, you did it la last, that was last year, right? That was last year, last right? year yeah. Got it. So now you're so you're basically going to go back and start all over right. again and try to complete it. So this will be sort of your third time that you've been around the PCT, whether you've done the whole thing or not. But um, you're starting from scratch. You're not going to say like, OK, I already did the 4000 miles. I'm going to start from that 4000 mile point and just segment it. You're doing the whole right, thing. Because if you want to get the record, you can't you have to do it in a calendar year. You know, the, the Great Western Loop is the holy grail of through hiking. It has everything. But more than that, it forces a pace that the average hiker can't do. You know, there's something called the Pyramid of Pain, which is a 20-mile day and then a 30, 40, 30, and 20. And that's significantly difficult for a lot of people. When you're doing the loop, you're doing as many 40s consecutively as you can do every day. And so when you enter the Sierras and you go up to Canada and you go over to Montana and you go down through the San Juans and the Rockies, those are the two checkpoints. And that section is 4,700 miles. And you got to do them in five months because winter's coming. And a lot of people just can't continue that pace. So when I did it last year, I took one, uh, I took one rest day in the Sierras because I poisoned myself with DEET. It, uh, 
I broke a bottle of DEET and it leached into my multivitamin gummies and I kept taking. Oh, man. Oh. And so I poisoned myself. And uh, so I took one rest day because of that. But in 141 days, 4,777 miles, that was the only rest day I took. Because you just don't, you don't have the luxury of an average through hike going into towns, meeting people, hanging out, taking multiple zeros. Like this elevates everything about through hiking way above all of it. I mean, and it, and it's, it's hard, very hard. <laughs> That's great. Now, are you concerned this year? Like my understanding, when we had this guy Matt on a couple of weeks ago, that's doing the PCT. My understanding is that this was a heavy snow year for the Sierras. So are you concerned about like dealing with the same situation that you dealt with in 17? No, it's actually the opposite. This year is very similar to last year. So they got 151 inches up into January and they get one more inch and they were going to hit the average. And then after that, they just got nothing but 40 in sun. So, um, yeah, this year is going to be, the snowpack is going to be low and that is always a concern because you know, for me to do the loop, I have to be pushing, you know, 30s in the Sierras. And um, when there's a high snowpack, you can't do it. But at the same time, I'm one of the first in there because I'm going in between the first and second week of May. Usually people on the PCT, they're getting in there, you know, early people, you know, beginning of June, middle of June. So I have to go in there earlier. And um, last year, I got in the Sierras on May 14th, and there was less snow in there than there was in July of 17. Yeah. And I have to imagine, like, and we, Stomp and I have talked about this before, like, but you hear about, like, Folks that hit the whites and they've like they're from other parts of the country and they're accomplished hikers, but they get in trouble because they don't have that local knowledge. Like this is at least your third time around, so you know at least the PCT piece of it. Like you know every sort of corner and what to expect from from most of that. So I have to imagine you've got a good advantage coming into this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know that from Kennedy Meadows, which is this seven hundred mile mark of the PCT. Um, that's where the desert ends. And by that point, you've basically weeded out all the pussies. Like, they're all done. They're done probably two, three hundred miles in. But So that's when me and Stomp would quit. <laughs> probably, yeah, maybe even before probably. that. Point. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, no, man, I'm not even going to start because I can't bring my hair dryer. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so like, yeah, from like Kennedy Meadows. So once you get into the Sierras, the only way to resupply is you got to take these side trail passes, and which is yeah. so different than the AT. AT, you know, you're going through towns all the time, but when you're in the Sierras, you know, you have to do like nine mile side trails up and over passes down to parking lots where you have to find a hitch to a main road and then do a 40 mile hitch to a town to resupply. And then you have to do that whole thing backwards. So you're doing so much shit off the trail so what i did last time was like okay it's 202 miles from kennedy meadows to mammoth pass so i'll bring seven days of food i ended up doing that 202 miles in six days and five hours and getting into mammoth and then once i went to the grocery store just to get some extra stuff and the the cashier was like big storm coming i'm like what are you talking about like 
Big storm tomorrow. I'm like, oh, shit. I go back up into the Sierras uh, that night. And then the next day, man, I got hit with a three-day storm. And I was, there was nobody out there. I was completely by myself, breaking trail through over a foot of snow. And uh, that was when I started taking the, the multivitamin gummies that were soaked with the deep because I just needed to, you know, get through this section. And oh, uh, so man, yeah, that, it was co- it was cold, man. Like my water bottles were freezing, my shoes froze, um, I froze. I mean, it, you just you don't even sleep when you're in that situation. You just lay in your tent, you wait for the sun to come up, and you think maybe tomorrow's going to be better. You don't have any service, so you can't check weather.com. You're, you know, you're just out there <laughs> dealing with it. And man, it was uh, it was tough. That was my worst week. It was, a, it was only I only did like 140 something miles. Really- wow. Well, the the so you get to the end of the P, you get to the northern terminus of the PCT, and then you've got to cut over to the the Continental Divide. And I know the Continental Divide is not um, it's not an easy place to get resupplies. Like, how does your what do you do for resupply when you're cutting? You know, you're heading east, and then you're on the CD CDT. Like, right. what, do you have friends that hook you up, or well, what is your strategy? So the strategy for that section was. I had a 10-day box of food sent to Snoqualmie, and I can't remember the exact mileage of it. I want to say it's like around like 23-something. And what I did was I broke it down, and I took five days, and I bounced five the other five days up to Mazama. And so I hiked from Snoqualmie to Mazama to that pass, hitched into Mazama, picked up my resupply box, and then got back on the trail. When I got back to the trail, a forest fire had just started behind me. And I was the first person to, to do the, the PCT. I think I did it in 76 days or something. But I didn't go to the northern terminus because that's not my trail. I actually took a right, oh, right 4.1 miles before the terminus. No one could believe it. They're like, what do you mean? You couldn't just go another 4.1 and tag? The monument yeah. and then turn around i'm like hey man that's 8.2 more miles it's two and a half hours like i'm doing another trail right. i took a right i got so much shit for skipping that so this time i'm just going to go up and tag <laughs> shut everybody up and then and then continue so yeah from mazama then i had to do i get on the pnt and the pnt in that section had had a forest fire years before and it had over 700 blowdowns and this is something that people don't realize on east coast out there man the blowdown sections are brutal they kill your pace they rip up your gear they scratch your legs and this this was a shitty section so i had to get to oroville washington um to resupply and because my pace got crushed by those blowdowns i ran out of food but I ran into some trail maintenance people, and after I passed them a couple miles down the road, I, or down the trail, I saw their trucks like parked where they'd been camping, and I just like flipped open a cooler and stole some of their chips, and like that got me, <laughs> that got me to Oroville. <laughs> yeah, and it was jalapeno chips too, so it gave me like really bad heartburn. Wow. So, so you're you eventually make it down to the you make it to the CDT, and then you're heading south. 
and then uh, somewhere along the line, you end up breaking your foot. Like, did you know it instantly? Were you like, I'm done? Or was it like a, a I know I've, I've, I bang myself up and I sort of get in that denial stage and I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I'm not. Right. Fine. Well, I mean, I actually, before I even got to the CDT, I, I walked right into a forest fire, like one that was right there. I came around a turn yeah. and there was forest firefighters fighting this blaze. I was like, what's going on? Here? Hi. Like, looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean, man? I'm hiking the PNT. They're like, not through this section. You're not like we radioed in a, a, a four by four. that's going to come and pick your ass up and get you the hell out of here. So that was oh, shenanigans shit. to get to the, to the CDT. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. But when I wow. broke, my, when I broke my foot, um, it wasn't anything special. It was like, I was 30 something miles into the day. I had plans for, I think a 47 and it was about, I don't know. I was like around 36 miles into my day and it was eight 30 at night. So the sun was going down, but I was moving at such a good clip. I didn't want to stop to get my headlamp out of my pack. Um, and I was going down this slight downhill and I, I stepped on a rock and when I stepped on the rock, I was, you know, with my momentum, the rock rolled forward and I kind of rolled my foot over itself and fell down onto my knees. And I remember saying out loud, like, wow, that was fucking close. And I just continued on. And then the next day, you know, I hiked, um, you know, I did a 36 that next day. And the last six miles was into a, a town called Grand Lake. And the road walk, my foot started to get sore. But I was just thinking maybe it's because I'm pounding pavement, you know, whatever. Happens sometimes. And the next day, by noon, my foot was really sore. By the end of the day, I was limping pretty good. When I woke up the next day, I was really in pain. And so I had to do 17 miles to another pass. And I had no plans on going into Winter Park. But at that point, I was just hobbling. So I'd almost done 100 miles on this thing. So I went into Winter Park and the owner of the hotel was like, how many nights you stay? And I said, no, nah, just one, you know, I just need to, you know, ice and elevate my foot just needs a break. He's like, okay. And I woke up the next day and I couldn't even walk. So I, I went up to the walk-in clinic. They did an x-ray and the nurse just, you know, calmly walks in and says, I'm sorry, but you broke your third metatarsal. You're done. Oh, yeah. Right. Right in the middle of, the middle of uh, your foot. Yeah. And, you know, it was just when I was, getting geared up to, you know, my pace was increasing. I was feeling really good. I mean, I, I had it. I mean, I had the record and, uh, yeah. that was, it was tough. So I flew home and was on crutches for four weeks. I called the doctor in winter park that had give, you know, had looked at the x-rays. I said, Hey man, I'm coming back. He's like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. He's like, you can't come back. I'm like I'm coming back. So I flew back in October, <laughs> 30 days later and tried to finish, but it stormed the first out. Not good. I'd storm the first two days. <laughs> I'm post-holing through two feet of snow. And because I was wearing that walking boot for a month, um, mm -hmm. my Achilles was so tight. Yeah, I had acute tendonitis. I pulled my calf muscle. And I basically got up the next day and walked, a, limped a mile down the road. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pack it in. And I was pretty devastated. So where are you now in terms of your rehab, your healing? You think you're ready to go? Oh, ready to go. I'm ready to go. Ready to go. So what's the departure date? April uh, 19th. I'll start from nothing, Arizona. So 
started nothing and ended nothing. <laughs> so I'll fly into oh, Vegas. Okay. Yeah. Intense. So it's March 15th now, just so listeners know. Awesome. Did you do any therapy or rehab? Um, no, it was a clean break. So I basically just uh, came home and gave it the two weeks that it really needed. And then it kind of got better on its own. And then, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I just started working, you know. I, just, I just move been, it. Yeah, I've had one day off uh, per week since Christmas up until the mm-hmm. snowmobiles stopped. So the whole the whole plan for these last you know four months really has just been to work as much as I can, save as much as I can, and get going. And luckily, I have yeah. uh, some sponsors that you know um, are going to help me out. But yeah, tell us about that. Who who are the sponsors? Well, I have. Yeah, so I got uh, Nashville Packs, which I think are yeah. making the best through hiking packs right now. I mean, they're they're super light. They got the best shoulder strap system. Um, they're mm-hmm. giving me a prototype pack to wear that has a removable waist belt and a carbon fiber stay. Because um, I have four days into this hike, you have this massive water carry. Last time it was ninety two miles, so I. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I left Parker, Arizona with 16 liters of water and a liter weighs <laughs> 2.2 pounds. And I went two I'm miles right. down the, dude, I went two miles down the road and I'm like, fuck this. I don't care <laughs> if I die of dehydration, man. Like I'm not carrying a 65 pound pack. So I, I sucked down four liters and just got nine pounds right out of the pack. This Holy time, moly. instead of going North, uh, through Joshua tree, I'm going to go South and that is a 72-mile uh, or 74-mile waterless stretch. So the pack that wow. they're designing is for that big carry. And then once I get uh, to, the, to the PCT, I'll remove the waist belt because I don't, I don't hike with a waist belt because um, I like that airflow. And if you have a 10-pound base weight, you don't need one. Um, so, mm-hmm. And then once I get to uh, the Sierras, my pack will bulk back up with um, – a little bit more warmer gear. I'll bring a stove for that section, and so I'm not. I'm going stoveless for for all of the desert because water is such a high commodity that I don't want to waste it on cooking ramen or nor pesticides. I just cold soak or eat friggin' protein bars. So I got to yeah. eat thirty five hundred to four thousand calories a day. Um, oh so I eat like 15 bars a day. I always start with a that's Lenny like, and Larry cookie. <laughs> that's like, I, I eat probably like, I don't know, 1500, maybe a thousand a day. It's amazing. You sure about that? Incredible. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, you're burning like, you're doing a 40, you're burning like 5,000 calories. So even oh, though no 4,000 calories seems like a lot, I'm just sustaining my weight. And if anything, I'm losing weight. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty, I'm a skinny dude anyway. So right now I'm in the process of just trying to gain as much weight as I can. Like I'm trying to gain about 30 pounds before I leave and I've gained 12 pounds in the last three weeks. And somebody the other day said, wow. somebody the other day said, how are you doing that? I'm like, what do you mean? You just eat like an average American. It's very easy <laughs> to do. <laughs> salt, sugar, and fat, baby. Salt, sugar, and fat. 
So yeah. Yeah. how much do you weigh? Right now I'm like one seventy four. And I'm wow, six yeah. three, dude. I'm Jeez. like a goddamn beanpole. Yeah. No kidding. So, yeah. That's I mean, funny. When I when I got done the hike last time I weighed myself, I was down to one fifty three. I mean I'm my legs are like tree trunks, but man, I look like you know, I'm super thin. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. And are you a social media guy? Do you have like um YouTube or Facebook, do you do any of that stuff? Or I know you have the website, which we'll link in the show notes. I mean, I, I have it. And I did update, like, I do a, a fake book update once a month um, just to okay. let people know. It's, it's really more for people to donate to the cause, donate to the foundation, you know. And um, yeah. I had I had somebody uh, handle my uh, Insta chat or Instagram. Um, and so yeah i do do those things and you know it's i i'm out there so focused on my pace and the challenge of it that i don't have time to stop and update constantly and there's people that do that and Mm -hmm. i've been turned down by a lot of sponsors because i don't have a lot of instagram followers which is extremely frustrating because you know i'm doing this thing that very few people have done and not only am I doing it, but I'm going for the record to do it. And to these companies, it's like, that's not good enough. But if I had 5,000 Instagram followers, they would, you know, hook me up. And so it just seems really strange and it's really frustrating. And I was frustrated. And then I was like, you know what? If that's the way they're going to be about it, I don't want them anyway. Because mm-hmm. I'm very particular yeah. with my gear. And I have to be because I know what I like and I don't like and. I'm not just going to throw out a bunch of requests asking for sponsorship and realize that when I'm, you know, three days into a snowstorm, this stuff is not working out. But at least it was free. So I'd rather just pay for it. Got it. And this this sponsor, Nash, is it? It's Nashville Pack. Yeah. Is that yeah, one? Yeah. They're awesome. How big, are their, how big are their backpacks? So the one that I'm going with is a 38 liter. Okay. For all you aspiring through hikers out there, you never need anything bigger than forty liters to do a through hike. Um, but mainly because you know if you're if you got a fifty five liter pack, that's just more shit you think yeah. you got to put in it. So yeah, they've really dialed it in, and uh, I'm happy. It's yeah, it's the best pack I've ever used. I've used them all, and uh, that, yeah, that one's the best one. Wow. And what does it mean? Like I'm on the site right now and I'm looking at it and it says you can order with no shoulder straps needed. Like, what does that mean? You can just buy it as a carry bag? No, like, so the, the shoulder straps are removable. And if you okay. want to change out just the body of the pack to a different design pack that they have, you can keep your existing shoulder straps and put on a different pack. They're all universal. Um, it's not it. one strap buckle. It's three smaller ones, so it displaces that weight better. And they have all—they have six stretchy pockets right in front of you. So you've got—you can put your bars in some, you can put your phone in some, and they're really wide shoulder straps. And so, okay. it's basically—if you ever see any of those fruitcake trail runners, like their vests—it's kind of like a vest design for the shoulder strap part of the pack. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Because I—I actually just transitioned to. Um, like the ultimate direction fast pack, and it's you're exactly what you're talking about. It's like a thin, sort of th- um, thicker mesh 
like it's a running vest, um, but it's it's a heavier. It's like a twenty liter pack, so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what do you use for a tent? Uh, so this time I'm using the Aon Lee by Tarp Tent. Um, I've used okay. Tarp Tents before. I, I used one on the ECT. I used the Tarp Tent Double Rainbow, uh, which I would never use that now. It's a two person weighs forty one liter or forty one ounces, which is astronomically high. So the tents I use now are pitch with a trekking pole, uh, six stakes. So that's what I'm using. This one weighs nineteen ounces. I used a Z-Pax Altiplex last year, which weighed 16 ounces. But with that one, it's meant for tall people. And you need to have um, a carbon extension for the pole because the poles don't telescope long enough to get it really taut. Um, and Z-Pax zippers are kind of weak. You know, when you're hiking in the desert, you got to make sure your zippers stay clean or the teeth will eventually wear down and then the zippers start to... To break and so uh, tarp tent makes a more heavy duty zipper and sure it's a heavier tent but you know I'm not big on I mean I cowboy camp in the desert um, but I don't cowboy camp you know a lot and I don't I kind of like to be enclosed so I like my zippers to work <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I get that, man. Dude, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, like, but we're we're hitting time here, and we want to talk about the cog. And I actually want, I'd be interested in your view as a local guy, like, you know. And again, I'm a masshole, but I, I you know, our family has a place up in and in, in Maine and Western Maine, so I sort of like, I'm sort of in between both of those locations. But you're like a true local, so I'd love to get your your perspective on the on the cog railroad um but before we move on to that subject uh, stomp is there anything else with with cheslick that we want to talk about here before we move on no not really no i think we covered a lot i mean i had some questions about the shakedown of the pack and stuff like that and more so when you're getting back into the colder climate like when you were, were experiencing hypothermia <clears throat> the reverse shakedown, you know, adding stuff back to your pack and stuff like that, how that all works. Yeah. But otherwise, I think we covered a lot, man. This is great. And as for the time, yeah. hey, this is the 50th, man. Let's let's savor it. Let's keep on yapping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so Chiswick, when you're, so what's, if, when are you, when are you heading out? Like you're heading out in like a week or no, something, no, right? No, no, yeah. I'm heading out April 17th. Uh, April yeah, 17th. And then. Out of Vegas. And then, uh, Booked a night at the Venetian. Figured I'd pan myself oh, nice. before I kicked my ass for seven months. All you can nice. eat Vegas is the perfect place to start. <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah, this guy was like, put 500 on black, dude. 500 on black. So, Live it yeah. up one more time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, uh, so if all goes well, then like 208 days, then that, what does uh, that take 208 days like, is what um, they did. I'm on a break 200 days. I want yeah. 199. So, 199. like November 3rd. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. So that's so, you know I, I'm basically going with uh, a 35 mile pace per day. So okay. I've, I've done everything that I I think I can do to streamline my resupplied days. Uh, you know, faster charging stuff, better. Um, you know, everything to make sure that when I get into a town, I can shower, laundry, eat a hot meal, charge my shit, uh, do the social media posts that I have to do, and then get going because. This one is being filmed as a documentary. And, oh, that's and right. We're, uh, you know, going to highlight the fact that there's no water out there. 
And, you know, it takes 1,900 gallons to grow one pound of almonds. And California is the leading producer of almonds, which is pretty crazy that they do that there. Wow. But so we're going to show that. And Taco Pumps is, is behind me as far as uh, is supporting that financially because they make uh, primer pumps for water heaters in your home. And so when you have one and you turn on your hot water, you automatically have hot water because the average household in a year will waste 2,500 gallons of water just waiting for it to warm up. So when they read about my foundation, they're in the water business, I'm in the water business, uh, it made sense. And when, when I'm out there, it's not hard to highlight how dire the drought situation is, especially when we're down to 40% of the fresh water on this planet. So... Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. So I'm going to have a camera crew meet me at certain points on the trail because they can't hike with me, but they can get a lot of footage that way. And I'll have a GoPro again, um, you know, just for some of the gnarly stuff. Um, so, yeah, all my resupply points are going to – I'm trying to keep it under five hours. And that way I won't limit my pace. My ideal day is 30 miles in a resupply. So that's, that's my goal every five days. Wow. Yeah. I'm tired just thinking about it, man. But So we'll have you back in November when you've wrapped this up. and yeah, Just watch awesome. your footing, man. No, do not break your foot. This well, I got 15 pairs of the same shoe, and I even got the same color. <laughs> okay. I even got the same color. Not, I don't want to mess with the juju, man. That's it. Yep. Don't, don't mess. Don't change anything <laughs> up yeah. here. So. All right. One pair of underwear. All right, so right. one pair of underwear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fifteen <laughs> shoes and the same pair of underwear. You can't. I, your underwear cannot survive seven thousand miles. I Just refuse to believe. Go it. commando. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. All right, well, we're going to move on to segment two here, and we're going to talk about the, the Cog Railroad, and we definitely want to get your perspective on this, Chez. But um, we, we talked about this in the beginning of the show, so um, the owner of the Cog Railroad, he's been dancing around this stuff a little bit over the last like probably five to ten years. He's been proposing that um, you know he wanted to get some sort of lodging situation going on there. So the latest update is like last week it came out that he is um, – about five years ago, he said that he was looking to build a structure up around, like right below the summit. They've got an easement for 99 feet across the um, the tracks there, and he was looking to build a structure where people could stay overnight and they build a restaurant, etc. He's transitioned that plan now to. Um, I'm assuming he wants to build a railroad track next to the existing track, and then level that out and position 18 cars where nine of them will be. Um, where you can stay, you can sleep, and then the the remaining nine will be support and restaurant real cars that you can eat. So it's basically a lodging experience. So I don't know, Stomp, if is that a good good description of what he's what he's got planned? I believe the the acreage may be like creeping up on half an acre. So you're looking at maybe eighty feet by two hundred feet or so. Um, location wise, it's it's. If you look at a map, um, we'll post the links, but um, if you're familiar with the, the end point of the COG railway, the first curve, just as you're starting to descend, it would be right in that area where it's fairly flat and uh, level. We have a, a post up today 
about this topic, and I can give you the up-to-the-moment results. And at the moment, we have 52 people voting no, hell no, and then four people voting yes. So basically, 93% saying no, it's a bad idea. Interesting, yeah. And I think there's a, there's already a petition where people are fighting this. And when they originally did the the announcement that they wanted to build some some structures up there like five years ago, there was a larger petition that took off that a lot of people were um, supporting. And I'll be honest with you, like five, six years ago when originally I, I, I heard about this, I was like, oh, and hell no, they shouldn't be building anything up there. And, you know, my my we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but my perspective has changed a little bit on that. But before we get into, I wanted to get in a little bit of history of the, um, the cog, but before we do that stomp, I wanted to ask you, do you know the difference between a real way and a, so it's the cog real way, mm-hmm. but do you know the difference between a real way and a real road? I do. Cause I did my homework, but I will not reveal okay. it if you'd like to explain. <laughs> All right. Well, the uh, the difference is really just it's semantic. So a real way is a term that was used in the UK to describe real what we call real roads. So for whatever reason, when they built the cog in like the mid 1800s, they decided to call it a real way. So I don't know if maybe there was some folks from the UK that were involved in in building it or what the story is, but that's that's basically the only difference. Yeah. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I also read that uh, a railroad would be one of these longer stretches, say like coast to coast. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. Yeah, but I guess I'm assuming like if they're going to build this lodging, like you're going to sleep overnight in a rail car, you're going to go to a restaurant, like this is not going to be inexpensive, I would assume. Well, that, that was my question. They say... On you know, Presby says that there's demand. Is there like what, what data? I mean, I know a million people visit the summit by car. So is that the demand they're talking about? Just to to reduce congestion, or but you're right. I think I mean, if you look at what it costs to sleep at the observatory for a night, I think it's like a thousand bucks. So is it? Will this be for the affluent only, or is this open to you know families of? lower income i mean what, what what is the plan i don't know but i gotta imagine like there's there's a market for this absolutely um like i would consider taking my wife up and doing this for a night you know so i there's got to be a market for it um and i'm sure that he's done some research on it to, to figure it out but I'm, I'm sure that he would wouldn't have any problem selling this out mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting any other concerns about it? I mean, for me, I, I, I'm shifting gears on it as well. I was absolutely opposed to the hotel, uh, the 25,000-square-foot mansion. Um, but now I think I'm leaning a little bit closer towards saying, hell, this is, this is okay. I mean, based on a number of factors. Apparently, legally, they're talking about limiting expansion after this contractually. So this would put a stop to any more expansion. Uh, whatever that means, I mean, that's going to be fleshed out. I mean, honestly, the, the location seems to be pretty good. It's fairly flat. And for the people that are nervous about destroying the fauna up there, I don't know. You're talking about less than half an acre, and you have, what, 20 miles plus of alpine vegetation that you you still have? I don't know. I'm starting to get a little softer on this whole thing. Yeah, and I think... The way I look at it is, I think, so there's been some lawsuits going back and forth. Like the 
the observatory sued the Cog Railway, and then the railway sued the observatory, and there's been a lot of legal back and forth over the last like two, three years. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is posturing for the owner of the Cog Railroad to sort of have a negotiation point to be able to get lodging up there. So the owner's name is Wayne Presby, local businessman. He's, I think he's been involved with ownership of the COG for like the last 20 years or so. I think he bought it outright like three or four years ago. But, um, you know, the, the benefits are that the people that wouldn't, you know, the hikers can hike up and they can get there, but there's thousands of people that the only access that they would have to get to a mountain like Mount Washington is by car or by railroad. And obviously, like, I feel like the horse is out of the barn when it comes to Mount Washington. It is. It is just a, it's it's a commercialized shit show up there. And I don't think that adding this lodging option is going to add much of a difference to, to what it, you know, what it already is. And I do think that like giving people access to going up there, like maybe they take a kid up there that gets inspired to be in, you know, to get into hiking, he becomes the next Cheswick. I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't think it's as bad as a permanent structure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's good. I mean, it'll be within the easement that they have, you know, legally you can look, you know, I was going to go through the legal documents on this, but I don't want to be like that scene in air, air, plane where the pilot's telling his story and everybody's killing themselves so we're going to skip the legal stuff yeah but we will post the documents from the ag of new hampshire and all the parties interested you should look at it. it's actually really interesting it's complicated there's a lot of uh rights that are being split up and there's quite a lengthy history of who owned the summit how it was transferred and uh you know it's very interesting yeah, and there's also the dispute. So I talked about this before, but the dispute between the observatory and the COG is there's a bunch of things going on here. One is there's an there's like a, a an easement agreement from 1894 that basically says that the COG has exclusive rights to host lodging on the summit. The observatory, which was put in in like the 1930s, they actually do do lodging on the summit. They do these educational um, overnight stays. So like from the COGS perspective, they're like, well, if they're doing it, why can't I do it? And then the lawsuit from the observatory to the COG has to do with a dollar fee for every passenger. So supposedly the COG is supposed to pay a dollar to the observatory for every passenger that comes to the summit and that's to fund the museum in the observatory. But the cog is kind of like, well, why are we paying you a dollar for every one of our guests, but you're offering a free observatory for all the auto road people to go in and all the hikers to go in. Like you should be letting the cog people in for free and charging the auto road people because they're not paying anything. So they started <laughs> withholding that that payment mm-hmm. over the last like three or four years, I guess. Yeah. So there's this whole like posturing thing. And I think that eventually what's going to end up happening is if there is like legal pushback, eventually like they're going to come to a settlement somehow. And I'm assuming that that agreement will be that the COG can set this, set this lodging up. Let's dive into some white mountains history, shall we? Well, we have the opportunity. We'll get into a little history here. So um, with the Cog Railroad, so it was built in, I think it was, the the agreement was put in place in uh, 1850, 
55, I think, is when he started the process. But this guy, Sylvester Marsh, he was from Campton, New Hampshire, and he was a civil engineer by um, by trade. I don't know if he was, like went to college or anything like that. I guess anyone could just sort of learn the trade. So he was a civil engineer. Worked. He he walked down to Campton, New Hampshire. So he was a long distance hiker. Made his way from New Hampshire to Boston, um, and somehow he made his way out to Chicago when Chicago was a town of about three hundred people. So he was one of the founding fathers of Chicago. Became a became a rich man out there. He got involved in shipping of beef and pork back east, and um, he was always tinkering with shit. I guess this guy invented the original coffee percolator, which is pretty cool. So we owe him a, a, a debt of gratitude for that. But he was again known as a founding father of Chicago, uh, and eventually he, I guess. You know, fortunes come and go back then, and he lost his fortune due to some economic issues. I guess there was like a panic sell-off of the stock market or something, so he lost all his money. So he pivoted from like beef and cattle to um, grain business, and he he started a cereal that sold a lot of money, sold a lot, and he became, he basically picked up a new fortune. Somehow he traveled back east in like the you know 1852, and as part of that, he went to New Hampshire and he hiked Mount Washington. Got in a little bit of trouble on the peak, almost didn't make it up there, and that sort of sparked an idea for him. Was he was like, you know, me and my friend made it up, but it was tough and it was dangerous, and I'd love to, you know, have a situation where if we built a railroad car to get up there, it would be a lot safer. So that's that's basically was his idea. Sylvester Marsh, he proposed. Um, I guess he retired in 1855, and he came back east from Chicago and. The idea was that he would, uh, you know, he had this idea to build this railroad trail. So as part of, you know, he, he proposed this idea, built a prototype, and then he, he finally got it in front of the New Hampshire State Legislature in 1858. And I think he fully expected that it, the, the, it was going to fail miserably. Um, but they, well, I think the, the legislature basically thought that it was going to fail miserably they approved the the railroad railroad like permit for him and then he he got put on hold because of the civil war but by 1866 he was able to start construction and within 2 years they had that thing up and running and they had the tracks ready to go and i think the next year in 1869 was when they were fully operational so these people built shit quick back then <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. which is crazy as opposed to today. Yeah, exactly. But dig. a couple of things like so he they invented this cog mechanism which I guess sort of limits the uh, the train's ability to have to go down the track so it, it it helps with with pulling it up and then they also had to figure out a way to level as they were wood burning back in the day. So they went from wood burning to coal now they're diesel like Cheslegi talked about. But they had to figure out how to level the water tank. So the water tank sort of like, they stay level while the train goes up the track, regardless of what the angle is. And then, uh, so they had to invent that. They had to invent like the wood burning um, piece of it. And then, you know, over time, they just, it became a tourist attraction. And eventually this guy passed away. He sold it in like the late 1800s to the Boston and Maine Railroad. Eventually, it made its way to the Teague family. 
they eventually sold it to pre- the current owner Wayne Presby, and you know he became he was like had a partnership, but eventually he ended up becoming the sole owner in 2017, and that's that's basically you know it's been a part of the landscape for years. They've had a couple of accidents. What did they have? Eight people die. Right back in '67. Yeah. Do you want to just dive into that and read it? Don't worry about it. Just keep on going. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where it is. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 18 or 1967. This is a huge, huge story. I was just talking to yeah. um, a fellow volunteer, search and rescue volunteer about it today, and um, he recalls it vividly, and he had some friends that actually were part of the cleanup and this and that, and uh, they said it was like something out of Vietnam. I mean, just pieces and bodies everywhere and it was crazy so uh yeah let's check it out awesome all right so um i'm going into this cold here so 1967 um it was in the afternoon let me see here yeah so uh, september 17th 1967 major train crash eight people killed dozens more injured um, so you're talking over 50 years now and, um, it was very chaotic. I guess they had, um, it doesn't really say here stomp on exactly, oh, here we go. What, what caused the crash? I think that the cog mechanism just failed and the train went off the rail and, you know, headed down mm-hmm. the track and that was it. Like it just wasn't going to, um. You know, people weren't going to survive that when it, when it, you get to that speed. I think eight people died, seventy total were injured. Yeah, incredible. They they packed the cars up for this ride down, and, uh, and from what I understand, they swapped roles. So you know, the engineer was in the wrong place at the time, so there was just nobody manning the brake system. And I think since then, what Presby has done is they've installed automated systems, and policy now is to stop at every uh, junction. Um, and there may be other um, redundant systems for safety, but uh, yeah, I, I had not uh, heard of this story. But '67 is not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. It's 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 attributed to human error. Yeah. So those people must not feel so great. But I guess apparently, like you said, stomp. It can't happen now. The owner <laughs> has assured us that something like this can never happen again. Of course not. <laughs> but you know what can happen. Getting rescued twice on the same mountain. <laughs> Have you heard oh, this yes. story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't count the number of times I got this story sent to me. <laughs> Do you want to tackle it? Yeah. I mean, this guy, he's a New Yorker. He was out hiking. <laughs> um, he was in Arizona. So Humphreys Peak is like the tallest mountain. And it gets north of Flagstaff. I drove by it when I was out. I've hiked out there a lot and uh, drove by it. Um you know, it looks like a it looks like a cool mountain, but it doesn't look any different than like you would see like a Mount Washington. Like I've heard, it's not that difficult of a hike. But this guy got like he got rescued one day and then went back to hike it and then had to get rescued a second day in a row. So mm-hmm. not a good look. Persistent um, fellow. And then I did. See, yeah, yeah, and I did see on social media like, and we had a case like this in in Maine. I thought that we talked about a few weeks ago, but like the guy was like, "I'm not ashamed," and like I. You know, uh, I'm a mountaineering person or something crazy like that. Like, if you get rescued two days in a row on the same hike, like, you, 
it's just time to like go to a different place. I think so. Twenty-eight year old guy lives in Brooklyn, and um, he got lost while hiking Humphreys Trail, um, San Francisco Peaks. It's overlooking Flagstaff. So if you ever get out to that area, it's a beautiful area, but that can be a tough hike. Like you got weather situations; it gets cold. And if this guy wasn't clearly, he wasn't prepared and didn't have the ability to navigate. So mm-hmm. five and a half mile trail. You know they're having a they're having a big issue with search and rescues out on the beginning part of the PCT because all of these people are now carrying these spot in reach devices, and you know those are you yeah. really push those in a life or death situation, and when you get one, you have to pay you know a subscribing fee, and basically people are getting dehydrated or they're they're rolling their ankle, and they're pushing it. And these search and rescue guys are showing up with the helicopter. They've got to take them out of there. And they get inundated with calls. And last year, there was a girl who posted on Facebook that she got rescued because she had rolled her ankle. And she spent three days in the motel and she was getting back on the trail. And you're seeing this happen more and more where people aren't willing to just deal with it and get out of these situations. They just push these buttons. And oh, it's a security blanket. Yeah, is. we talk about this quite a bit. Yeah, and it's it's not yeah. it's not meant to be, you know, what they're using it for. And uh, these guys are getting pretty fed up with it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a, we talk about this all the time, Cheswick, and it's like you know we talk about these phones too, and it's like it's great that everyone has cell connection now on the whites, but. It is this sort of chicken and the egg. Like, are we, when you give people more access to technology, are they going to use it responsibly when they really need to use it? Or are they going to just sort of say, like, my my safety net is a lot wider than, like, your your safety net is, like, you know, it seems to me like, you know, I don't know you that well, but my sense wide. is that, like, you're going to break your foot. Like you're going to make your way out regardless. Like, but like other people are going to not feel great and they're going to call, they're going to hit. Well, you know, just to be clear, I had a spot device, but I didn't want to carry the extra 10 ounces. So I sent it home. (laughs) 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 I mean, I I didn't know anything about these things. Like BCT, I didn't have any of that stuff. I I don't even, I don't know. I mean, so much of when you're out there is learning self-reliance and handling it and making the right decision. And these people, you know, they're like, well, you know, Mount Washington, it's not, it's not the Himalayas, you know, it's not a 14 or how bad could it be? It's like, you know, we get some of the worst weather in the world and you need to know that. And, you know, a lot of people that die up there, it's human error. And I'm glad that they charge these people now when they need to get rescued because, you know, it's not easy to do the hike and it's certainly not easy to have to go up there and carry somebody down and have nine people coordinating getting this person off the mountain. And, um, yeah, they, t- they take it for granted, you know. And I don't know how much of these spot devices are, are saving lives more than just getting a lot of stupid people out of a situation they got themselves in in the first place. That might sound a little callous, but, <laughs> you know, I think... You know. Well... It's we talk about it all the time. Again, it's like you know, the electronics are great, and it's great to have access to. Like I use it all the time to, to see where I am on the trail and etc. But you know, you got you do have to think like, okay, how many of these calls that come in are calls where someone could have 
rescued themselves. And, you know, I think when you talk to search and rescue people, my guess is that they're going to say, we're going to come whenever anybody calls and we're going to err on the side of safety. But your point is. Yeah, there's one girl, one girl on the PCT. She, she was dehydrated. She thought she had heat stroke. She didn't have a spot device. She convinced these two other hikers to push theirs. So they did. The helicopter showed up and the people that own the spot device had to go in the helicopter with her and actually by the time the helicopter arrived she was fine but in that 20 minutes she was freaking out and she didn't know what to do because she's probably never been in a situation where you know she had to deal with anything remotely scary and so as soon as they they feel that uneasiness it's just like okay what do i do how do i handle it and they they push the button and you know you're attempting a 3,000 mile hike or a 2,600 mile hike like the whole idea is to handle these situations on your own. And um, and if you're not willing to to be prepared for that, then just don't even bother. Because, I mean, these people that are going out there to save them, they're risking their lives too. I mean, there's a lot of other things they'd rather be doing than going up uh, Mount Washington in the middle of February to, to grab somebody that, you know, shouldn't have been going up in sub-zero temperatures to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you stomp. Stomp's waiting at home to get that call. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The burden of my passion for search and rescue. <laughs> Wait, are, are you a search rescue? Are you a search and rescue guy? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I've been doing search and rescue for a number of years. And it's like overtaken my hiking passion um over the last two years or so so it's like all i do i just sit around waiting for calls <laughs> dude there's a there's an old guy in gorm that i always see him jogging and he's got like a ton of uh rescues that he's done do you know who i'm talking about uh i want to say mike pelchat maybe or that's him i mean there's yeah there yeah. you go dude, he's always he's always over here running in like a bright green vest like every day yeah yeah he's a legend dude. yep he's quote-unquote retired but he's still up there banging out the rescues he's incredible awesome there's a lot of people like that i mean they're just just devoted and just so passionate about it yeah we're glad to have them absolutely wow well we're we're over two and a half hours cheswick so this is the <laughs> longest episode we've ever had but honestly it's like been great i forgot that we were doing a podcast i'm like listening to you talk about this stuff like i can listen to you all day <laughs> i looked at some hey, of- you know what mike <laughs> dude let, let's punt this last story. What do you say? I'll, I'll yeah, edit it out. No doubt, yeah. 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 No but yeah, this has been fantastic. Dude, I, I got, so what were you going to say, Chad? Dude, I got some, well, I got DVD footage of all my GoPro stuff that I did. And uh, my buddy put it on DVD form and he sent it. And I, I watched some of it last week. I'm like, oh, man, I suck. I'm not that funny. I can't believe I sound like this. Like, man, it, it's hard to see yourself in a video like that. And uh, hmm. it's going to be weird yeah, to have, like, a, a real documentary filmed. Um, yeah, it's, That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I think, yeah, it is cool. But, you know, it's, it's a lot more work. I mean, I think just doing it, just the hype on its own, is hard enough and you got to add in you know like footage and stuff because i remember like a week into the hike they met me um you know so they would they would film me with like the legit camera and uh you know it was after like a 41 mile day i think and i was so exhausted it was like 11 30 at night 
and he had the camera going and I said something. He was like, oh man, I didn't pick that up on the mic. Can you repeat that? And I was like, no, no, Ugh. I'm done. You didn't get it too fucking bad, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, beat. I'm done. Like that's, that's not happening. So, you know, those things make, that's it, funny. make it a lot harder, but you know, it, I think it, it, someone told me today that, you know, it's inspiring and I don't, I don't think about it that way. You know, you're just kind of so involved in just trying to accomplish this goal. You don't think of other people that are like, you know, I'm on the hamster wheel and, you know, I wish I could just get out and do stuff like that. And I just don't have the time because I have, you know, kids or mortgage and car payments and I don't have any of that stuff. And so I, I feel very fortunate. Um, Mm-hmm. that way you know some people would look at it like well you know you're 36 years old you don't have your own home and you're not married you don't have any kids it's like you know i'm seeing stuff and i'm doing stuff that you know very few people get to do and and if the sacrifice is not looking like a typical average american at 36 years old and you know i'm okay with that but um mm-hmm. Well, I also think that that typical average American idea about, you know, how you're supposed to live your life is starting to change. Like there's more and more people that are realizing that like to be a sort of a slave to the nine to five routine. And I feel like I'm it's it's, I lost. I mean, I'm I'm on it no matter what I do. But like I, I tell my kids, like, you know, you need to take some time in your life to experience living and like you'll have. 50 years to work if you you know so take some time when you're young and get it done to me that's the biggest thing is like you're you're in a good situation with with what you want to do but i really think for most people it's like get it done when you're young because like i think back to like what you were talking about when you meet those old guys on the on the appalachian trail they all say the same yeah. thing to you right like it's like i wish i'd done that when yeah, i was young absolutely i met a guy named fig <laughs> he was doing his fourth at and I said, why is your name Fig? And he goes, because my real name's Wayne Newton. I'm like, you're going to be kidding me. You're going to be kidding me. But, you know, yeah, 480. Um, yeah, and seeing a lot of those guys. I mean, you know, the AT, you know, really pounds your knees. And, you know, you're meeting these guys in their mid-70s doing it. And it's so inspiring. You know, us young guys running up and down the yeah. trail. And, you know, 30-mile days can be tough. But, you know, they're doing these 20s from those old knees it's like that's crazy but they're so focused on that goal like this is something you think that they've probably been thinking about for 50 years and they've been on the hamster wheel they've worked for 40 years they've raised their kids you know and now they're retiring and and this is what they're doing and uh it's 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 pretty awesome to see and the other awesome thing to see is the kids out of high school that go you know what I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know where I want to go for college. I don't know what I want to do. Let me take five months out of my life now and just think about it. Let me not rush into it. And I wish more people would do that because the Appalachian Trail to me, it's so special and the people and the huts and the whole thing about it. And if everybody did the Appalachian Trail, this would be such a better world because it, it really, it humbles you, but it, it just opens your eyes up to so many possibilities that you don't realize until you have that time to yourself to just be able to walk and think. And there's no distractions, you know, it's just you and the trail. And it's, uh, it's something that's really special. 
Awesome. All right. That's that's where we're going to end this. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good book good ending point, man. Cool, man. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, my man. Dude, this was awesome, man. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Didn't feel like two and a half hours. It went by quick. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 